Lucifer Moon's Lightbringer presents Halloween Under the Sea, the rhymes and riddles of Patchface the Fool, with Crow Food's Daughter, Ideas of Ice and Fire, Joe Magician, Painkiller Jane, Sanrixia, and your host, Lucifer Means Lightbringer. Hey there, friends, patrons, mythheads of the Starry Host. It's your Starry Host, LML. And I am here today with a very special Halloween under the sea. That's right. I'm going. It's going to be a Mythhead roundtable dedicated to deciphering the mad rhymes and riddles of everyone's favorite antler hat wearing fool, Patchface. Joining me is an all-star cast of friendly faces all of you know well, plus the mythical astronomy debut of a longtime Mythhead patron and frequent contributor to mythical astronomy. But before I introduce our panel, I just want to apologize for wearing a recycled costume. Please hold one second as I grab my parrot, who has escaped my head. Stay. Yes, addressing my costume. I want to apologize for wearing my recycled King of Winter costume. And the beard, it just gets too itchy, so I thought I'd rock the stubble today. Um, it was a big letdown, I know, after all of the hype. I apologize. I had a great costume, and it just fell apart. Such a big letdown. So I hope you can forgive me. Murphy's Law and all. In any case... Let me introduce our panel. Joe Magician will be joining us fashionably late, of course, because he has to do that to us. And I'm sure I'm not sure where Sanrixian is. I see uh, some sort of castle background, but I don't see her. Hopefully she'll pop in in a second. And in any case, let me start by welcoming back the beloved Crow Foods daughter of the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. Hi, guys. I'm Amanda. I go by Crowfood's daughter, and um, I have a YouTube channel called The Disputed Lands. And I am here today dressed as Val the Wildling, and um, I've got my uh, bearskin cloak and my weirwood brooch, and I am ready to talk about Patch Base. Next up, we will have Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire. Quinn, introduce yourself. Hello. I'm Red Priest number three. I serve the Lord of Light. His fire is inside me. The night is dark and full of terrors. <laughs> and where can we find you, Gwen? Ideas of Ice and Fire, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Check me out. Nice, nice. And now we have making her mythical astronomy debut, the legendary one and only PK Jane, Painkiller Jane. Welcome. Hi, everybody. I'm uh, Painkiller Jane. I am dressed today as Jenny of Altstones, and I'm looking for my Prince of Dragonflies today. <laughs> you can mostly find me on Twitter. Uh, I, I love DMs, and I love uh, if you tag me on something, I'll probably be there. So that's mostly where you will find me. Yes, yes, you're a frequent contributor to mythical astronomy and quite a myth head. Now, I think I see Sanri has appeared with some sort of castle background. Uh, let's, let's check in on her. Away, away, under the sea, under the sea. <laughs> I will lead us under the sea and back out again. <laughs> so... <laughs> awesome. 
Clang lang. Ring ring dong ding. <laughs> Two under the sea. <laughs> oh my goodness. Under the sea, the smoke rises in bubbles. I know, I know. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me put my headphones in here. Lock it on your screen, David, please. Uh, oh, it looks like the chat is just uh, the chat is <laughs> like the wheel of fortune wheel. <laughs> uh, welcome, welcome, friends. Welcome. Uh, I am Patchface Clown, and I am here to guide you under the sea with my friends, uh, Red Priest number three. I've got uh, Val the Wildling. I've got Jenny of Old Stones. And uh, I had a a stubbly and bearded LML here a minute ago, but uh, where'd he go? That is amazing. I don't know how you made the bucket with the antlers, but it is really good. <laughs> it is really awesome. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> what did the sea? What did the seahorses say under the sea? Uh, I think they <laughs> seahorses. I don't think they say anything. I think they just no? swim. I feel like they have their special language. I don't know. What does a seahorse whinny sound like? That's a good question. I guess I should know. Bubbles. Bubbles, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we've. Uh, I hope you all are thoroughly confused. Um, and Stanley, thank you for, for doing the LML Open there. That was fantastic. And thank you, everyone, for joining me today. And this is my first attempt at uh, face paint makeup, so... Uh, forgive me if it's subpar, but I did my best. No, you did good. Awesome. You did really, really well. It's good enough to be effective, right? See, I, I took it, you know, I took it around the bear. Hey, it's a work in progress. I classify, I call this a cosplay. What do you think? I yeah. like it. Yeah, you <laughs> I would call that a cosplay. Yeah. You yes. could wear that to the con and everybody would know who you are. Exactly. It would Great be perfect, perfect, actually. Con, what do you think, guys? <laughs> You won we, many victories. We could do it a different. We'll do a we'll do a panel on prophecy. <laughs> just just as that. <laughs> yeah, the eyebrows next time. I wasn't gonna like. I don't know. I didn't want to cake a bunch of makeup in my eyebrows. I kept the eyebrows. Plus, if they, <laughs> when they patch faces, face is tattooed, so the eyebrows would grow over the colored skin and be dark. So this is accurate. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. That's right. All right. Away, away. See, Patchface did a little dance. Dee-dee-dee. Anyways. Uh, yeah, so we do have actual content today. Uh, we're not here just to wear costumes. Um, we are here to talk about Patchface. And Patchface is quite the character, isn't he? He's uh, scary and crazy and packed full of symbolism all at the same time. I have to say, when you're reading... A Clash of Kings for the first time, and you get to you get to the the Crescent Prologue, and Patchface walks in. It's a little WTF, is it not? That's seriously like one of the reasons that I really didn't like Patchface the first time through. And when I went back through and I found like all the symbolism and all the things associated with him, I was like, "Oh, I get it. He's still a total creep. Like, leave Shireen alone. Like, leave her alone." But. But yeah, I kind of like their friendship now, and I hope it's as pure as 
I like their friendship, but for me, I just saw death everywhere, just like Mel. Like, I just saw yeah. skulls everywhere with him because he's just utterly terrifying. <laughs> I mean, like, through my first reread, I was just very confused on that whole thing. I didn't catch the symbolism until at least the second or third, you know? I do like the theory that the blood that Mel sees coming out of his mouth could be his own blood after he has sacrificed himself to try to save Shireen, but... We'll see. We'll see. Maybe he'll bite Green's head off or something horrible like that. <laughs> have, More likely. I do have a couple super chats that came in to kick things off. Black Eyed Lily, uh, thanks for the costume, she says. And Stephen Stark uh, with the ritual super chat of 1313 today for Halloween. So thank you very much. Also a great last year number, the old Baker's Dozen. Uh, leave Shireen alone. Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> leave Shireen alone. <laughs> Hashtag 2K9. The girl will die. Oh, Red Priest number three. Red Priest number three with your spooky voice. Would you do me a favor and uh, read these first two uh, quotes that we've got? So before we go into the Patchface actual rhymes, we're going to read a couple of the descriptions of Patchface uh, just to sort of characterize them. And we'll maybe talk about him in general first. So, Quinn, we've got these first two short ones here. Do you see those at the top of the script? Yes. When Pylos returned, the girl came with him, shy as ever. Behind her shuffling and hopping in that queer sideways walk of his came her fool. On his head was a mock helm fashioned from an old tin bucket with a rack of deer antlers strapped to the crown and hung with cowbells. With his every lurching step the bells ring, each with a different voice. Clang a ding, bong dung, ring a ling, clung, clung, clung. Even for a poop. Even for a fool, Patchface was a sorry thing. Perhaps once he could evoke gales of laughter with the quip, but the sea had taken that power from him, along with half his wits and all his memory. He was soft and obese, subject to twitches and trembles, incoherent often as not. The girl was the only one who laughed at him now, the only one who cared if he lived or died. Ring-a-ding-dong-ding, as they say. Clang-a-lang. <laughs> Quinn, your voice is incredible. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> oh, boy, I see. We put Quinn in costume now. There's no, uh, there's no containing him. <laughs> All right. So, so we've, got, uh, we've got the old tin bucket. It's wrapped with cowbells and antlers. As you can see, I even did the twine here to, uh, to get that feel. Uh, but, of course, Patchface is sort of a jape on the Baratheons. And so he's following around Stannis uh, as a fool, uh, but he's, he's sort of, you know, he's dressing in imitation of the Storm Lords. And so right, right there from the beginning, he's, we should see him archetypally as one of these Storm God, Horned Lord figures, but obviously everything about Pastface is post-transformation. So uh, Amanda or Painkiller Jane, would either one of you like to say a word about the role of the fool, the classic role of the fool in uh, court life? Who's Who's got that one ready, ready to go? Um, I can talk about that. Um, so the fool is actually um, in court life. The fool actually um, is kind of given a pass at being able to make fun of and mock um, the people of the court. And that is what the role um, Motley does. It's actually a uniform um, that is 
uh, kind of putting uh, each of those fools into that role. So when they actually wear Motley, they um, are basically giving a license to make fun of the king, make fun of um, the lords and ladies of the court. Because if, if anybody just went into court and started talking bad about the king or the queen, making jokes, um, that would be considered um, uh, very disgraceful. And, and they could actually, um, in court life, they could actually be um, uh, punished for, for actions such as that, like making fun of the king. Um, and so the fool actually has a very, very special place in court. And um, he's he's able to do things that other people cannot and um, we see some interesting things going on with uh, Mushroom, who they say um, he was a, a lackwit fool, but we later learned that he probably um, just kind of acted more like a, a lackwit fool and um, kind of observed things and took everything in and was able to recount some things. Some of them, some of them was probably lies, but um, it seems like some of it was quite truthful. And so they, they felt um, at ease acting however they probably wanted around around him. And we see that with Moon Boy, too. So um, so the fool has a very, very special place in court where they are able to do things that others cannot. That's pretty interesting because Patchface's role is as this oracle of, you know, visions from the other side that he's not able to translate very well. And so they come out as these mad rhymes. But it seems like George is actually building on the classic role of the fool by making Patchface an actual oracle, you know, of the uh, under the sea realm. And Painkiller Jane, I know you wanted to say a little bit about the fact that the bells in Patchface's antlers are said to ring with a different voice. And just the overall symbolism of the bells in general. It's something that we see across the Song of Ice and Fire in a few places, isn't it? Yes, definitely. We see it a lot. It's, uh, we see it firsthand with uh, Danny and uh, the Dothraki. To go back to what um, to what Amanda was saying, uh, the fool is the counterbalance to keep the king mortal. So basically he's telling him, don't, uh, you know, the, the king occupies this mythical like um, association with God or the gods or whatever, but the fool is the one that reminds him that he is mortal by making fun of him. Um, but anyway, so the bells, <laughs> I I was looking up and there's like only certain places that he talks about um, the bells having different voices. I found several, which is uh, a couple from Sansa um, in... In Game of Thrones, uh, Sansa says, At sunset on the second day, a great bell began to ring. Its voice was deep and sonorous, and the long, slow clanging filled Sansa with a sense of dread. The ringing went on and on, and after a while, they heard other bells answering from the great sept of Baelor on Vincenya's hill. The sound rumbled across the city like thunder, warning of the storm to come. So this is right after... Um, uh, it's a death knell. It is telling everybody that Robert died. Um, and then later on, Sansa again said um, she, in the Clash of Kings, she goes, how long she stayed there, she could not have said. But after a time, she heard a bell ringing far off across the city. The sound was a deep-throated bronze booming. 
coming faster with each knell. Sansa was wondering what it might uh, mean when a second bell joined in and a third and their voices calling across the hills and hollows, the alleys and towers to every corner of King's Landing. She threw off the cloak and went to her window. And then she goes on to say that it wasn't a um, slow, dolorous death knell, but a joyful thunder. So several times we see that the bells are depicted as thunder. Um, And particularly in the scene, um, in Clash of Kings, the bells are associated with uh, Dantos actually coming to tell her that that they won and um, he does his great, um, the knights uh, to win, to be a knight, uh, sweet lady, you know, the foolish knight um, that he is. Um, so that's pretty striking that we've got the thunder uh, mm-hmm. implied with the bells because obviously Patchface is simulating the storm lords. And there's a quote that we're going to get to uh, where it says, you know, perhaps once Patchface could evoke gales of laughter. Yeah. So he's got this those storm god impression uh, connotations too. So he's basically like a weird doppelganger for the storm lords themselves, just like the fool is sort of like the conscience of the king, if you will. Mm-hmm, definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, That's the cool. gales of laughter is twice. He he has the evoke gales of laughter earlier, and then he also has the gales of laughter went up when he knocked down uh, Crescent um, in um, in the in uh, mm. Dragonstone. So, so these are stormy bells that he's ringing. Definitely, and for me personally, my tinfoil is is that they're all death knells. All of them, including the Dothraki, even though they're associated with victory. And victory for the Dothraki is usually killing a whole bunch of folks. So yeah, pretty much yeah. it's just all these bells ringing and just saying, hey, this is, this is death coming for you. And, of course, that reminds us of the, the last quote from the Ghost of High Heart about the Red Wedding, where she says the saddest sound was the little bells. So this, these are definitely death knell bells. Definitely. And I, that... Yeah. That's got to, I got to give Ravenous Reader some love. She's filling the chat uh, with, uh, you know, poetry here. Definitely. Um, yeah. So De- is Aegon, the- Frey is, uh, Aegon Frey and Patchface for me are like, uh, mm-hmm. because of the fact that he's Aegon, he's an Aegon the Conqueror. So he would be a call in a sense. We mentioned Ravenous Reader. We did. Uh, the poetess of the Nenny Moans because uh, everything that happens under the sea is flowing from her great discovery of the under the sea wordplay, and so and I have drawn her a tribute here. I see that I fixed and it. I am up. drawing in in verse Ooh, in honor hot. of being under the sea. So nice. Oh, you sure are. Oh, I also do think that he with the um, with uh, George equating the bells with battles and and victory over enemies and things like that. I definitely think he's trying to put a word pun in there with uh, bellum, uh, which is the Latin word for war. So he's doing the whole bell bellum thing. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and that is, by the way, all of you myth heads, a window into the kind of insight that Painkiller Jane has been whispering into my ear like a little bird for the last four and a half, four years or so, there's, you know, hardly a compendium that doesn't have the fingerprints of Painkiller Jane on it. So it's nice to have you here live instead of in the chat, pumping knowledge at me, uh, Painkiller Jane. Jenny of Old Stones with flowers in your headphones. 
Thank you for having me so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> right on. Right on. So guys, uh, Quinn, uh, Amanda, Mallory, what else do we have to say about some of these first couple of Patch Faces quotes and his general description? Um. Well, I would like to talk about Bells just a little bit more. Um, I talked about Bells in my video on Garth and the Great King. And um, one thing that you do want to know about is um, kind of the bail myth that um, I, you've talked about the bail myth before, um, David, haven't you? And, yes. Okay. So he's another horn God, um, just like Sir Nunos, you know, dies in the spring, um, you know, is, or dies in the winter, or resurrects in the spring, brings about the changing of the seasons. And um, one of the um, epithets for um, Baal is basically Bel, it's B-E-L, just an epithet means Lord. And um, something that you see with the sigil of House Black Tide is a black and green fairy, which is basically a bunch of bells there. Um, uh, some are inverted and some are not in green and black. So you get that green and black. And there's also uh, three other sigils that have very, have uh, very. And two of those sigils that have very actually have um, pictures of stags in, um, in the sigil. And I was trying to figure out which, uh, look them up really quick, but I, I haven't been able to. And then there's one other one that is uh, red and green, but it's still got that green in it. And so you can kind of see just these echoes of this um, uh, connection with that berry and the bells and um, that horn god symbolism being played out in the sigils. So it's course, something to kind of look at. Yeah, too. And house, I was thinking of House Tarly. They're the red and green with the huntsmen, and they've got all the horned god and horn-blowing symbolism. And you heard in the description of the bells that we just heard that these bell sounds are probably the same sound as the cry of agony and ecstasy that breaks the moon. It's the boom-dooming of the great heart that we hear. There's this thunderous sound that always appears uh, in the middle of the Lightbringer forgings. And I'd have to think these bells, especially the thunderous ones, are playing into that um, that, uh, motif. So, But like I said, we are dedicating this one to Ravenous Reader, and she's dropping some poetry here in the chat. And I want to read some of it, because this is some of the background of where these bells and patch face and all the stuff comes from the end of the sea stuff. So here's one. Uh, no man is an Island entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe, the less as well as if a promontory were as well as if a manner of thine own or of thine friends were each man's death diminishes me for I am involved in mankind. Therefore send not to know for whom the bell tolls it tolls for thee. So that uh, is, somebody help me out. That is that Shakespeare or what is that? What did I just read? Metallica, just kidding. No, that's, uh, <laughs> that's John Milton. <laughs> John Milton. Okay, and so most of us probably just know that last couple of lines. Um, I know it from uh, the old Adam West Batman series where they use that line. Uh, isn't, and that's, wait, isn't it Hemingway? Sorry, yeah, it's John Dunn, but Hemingway um, did write a book that's called uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Okay, I'm uh, not crazy. Thank yeah. you. That's all I so want. So I'm, I'm exposing myself as a low-quality lit nerd here. So, uh, But that's why I have people with street cred like Painkiller Jane uh, here on the panel. But the point is, the idea of the bells tolling for death is well-established as a literary trope. So even when the bells seem happy, it seems that George Martin is playing with that 
secondary layer there. And then the other bit of poetry that I want to read that Raven Salix was dropping in is where some of the under the sea stuff comes from. And oh, ravenous, it got buried. You'll have to post post it again for me. The uh, the forty fathoms bit. In any case, all right. So we just lit nerded out there for a second. <laughs> but Patchface is kind of. I mean, he's full of references to all kinds of things. He's he's one of the probably the best examples of why you don't want to just read a song of ice and fire, but rather follow some of these rabbit trails that George lays out for us. It, it leads you to learning all kinds of things. Uh, but see, we've got uh, the longer story. Of or, or Quinn, actually, you were going to speak up with uh, a bit to say about Patchface. Yes. Uh, and after you're done, would you go ahead and read this next quote about uh, Patchface's drowning? Um, Which should be the next thing in the doc there. Okay. But uh, give us your thoughts first. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about Patchface's drowning, so maybe I should read that quote first. Okay. Then, okay. Patchface had come to them as a boy. Lord Stephan, of cherished memory, had found him in Volantis across the narrow sea. The king, the old king, Ares II Targaryen, who had not been quite so mad in those days, had sent his lordship to seek a bride for Prince Rhaegar, who had no sisters to wed. We have found the most splendid fool, he wrote Cresson, a fortnight before he was to return home from his fruitless mission. Only a boy, yet nimble as a monkey, and witty as a dozen courtiers, he juggles and riddles and does magic, and he can sing pretty in four tongues. We have bought his freedom and hope to bring him home with us. Robert will be delighted with him, and perhaps in time, we'll even teach Stannis how to laugh. Okay. It's sad and crescent to remember that letter. No one had ever taught Stannis how to laugh, least of all the boy Patchface. The storm had came up suddenly, howling, and Shipbreaker Bay proved the truth of its name. The Lord's two-masted galley, wind-proud, broke up within sight of his castle. From its parapets, his two eldest sons had watched as their father's ship was smashed against the rocks and swallowed by the waters. A hundred oarsmen and sailors went down with the Lord Stefan Baratheon and his lady wife. And for days thereafter, every tide left a fresh crop of swollen corpses on the strand below Storm's End. The boy washed up on the third day. Maester Crescent had come down with the rest to help put names to the dead. When they found the fool, he was naked, skin white and wrinkled and powdered and wet with sand. Crescent had thought him another corpse. But when Jami grabbed his ankles to drag him off to the burial wagon, the boy coughed water and sat up. To his dying day, Jami had sworn that Patchface's flesh was clammy cold. No one ever explained those two days the fool had been lost in the sea. The fisherfolk liked to say a mermaid had taught him to breathe water in return for his seed. Patchface himself had said nothing. The witty, clever lad that Lord Stephan had written of never reached Storm's End. The boy they found was something else, broken in body and mind, hardly capable of speech, much less wit. Yet his fool's face left no doubt of who he was. It was the fashion in the free city of Volantis to tattoo the faces of slaves and servants. From neck to scalp, the boy's skin had been patterned in squares of red and green and motley. Is that? The oh, that's of- such a good quote. Yes, it is a beautiful quote. I mean, just just the imagery 
of, yeah. of mermaids kissing him and uh, giving in exchange for his seed and stuff like that and giving him the um, like uh, um, the prophecy. I'm, it reminds me of Cassandra who promised to sleep with the god Apollo in exchange for prophecy, but then she she didn't. I, I say promise, but more like with the Greek gods, everything is forced. What I um, <laughs> I thought was interesting about Patchface coming back is that so you have the others who mm-hmm. resurrect people through I guess we could call it ice magic, and then we have Relore who can resurrect people through fire magic, and then we have Patchface who's someone that drowned, and like that passage said, no one ever explained where he was or how he survived. So what exactly brought him back? Um, I don't know. Because we we see that we see the Ironborn and they have this ritual where they drown you and bring you back. They kill you and bring you back, but you're not actually dying. It's just a ritual. And it's supposed to bring you closer to the drowned god. But Pashtas is... Go on. No, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about too, Quinn, and I feel like we're on the same page here. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like the drowned god brought him back. I definitely feel like he did that. Is that what you were leading up to? I'm sorry. I I was going to say, well, Patchface is unlike any of those other people because they only, they don't actually die. Patchface was dead. Patchface drowned, died, crossed over, went under the sea and returned. Yeah. The the other ones, like, you drowned, yes, but you get CPR'd or whatever the Ironborn term for CPR is (laughs) back into a back to life. So Patchface actually dying and being gone for two days. I I think that's the most interesting part of it. Like what happened during those two days? Like, did he meet the drowned God? I mean, theoretically, if, if their religion was true, he'd be closer to the drowned God than any of their priests than any of the holiest among them. He'd be the holiest of holy. He's seen the face of the drowned God been swallowed by the sea and returned. And of course, the, the best way to think about this probably isn't in the literal sense of what exactly happened to Patchface, but rather in the sort of shamanic madness uh, sense of Odin. And basically, it's the idea that when you open one ear to the spirit realm and start hearing the whisperings of the spirit realm, you end up living in this sort of in-between place where you can't quite totally relate to regular people, and you're sort of trying to pass along the knowledge of the gods to mankind. And when you become that sort of conduit, you live half in a world of madness. And this is a very old concept tied to uh, shamanic practices all over the world. So, mm-hmm. and, and it's yeah. epitomized and it's, in Odin. So, and it's Go a ahead. good allusion to, um, to uh, the witch trials of drowning a witch. And yep. if she floats, she's a witch. If she she's drowns, yeah, but either way, with him, he's uh, he's magical. And for me, just because of the imagery of the mermaids kissing him and giving him prophecy, I think it was the Lady of the Waves, since he's on that side of Westeros with the sisters, um, the three sisters, and they believe in the Lady of the Waves. So I think that's the person who brought him back. Well, that's, that's charitable. But uh, speaking of magic, we do have a magician uh, that has appeared, not in a poof of smoke, but in a poof of gray robes. You don't know what I did before I came on the stream. There could have been smoke Uh, everywhere. That's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There wasn't. Sorry. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Matt. What's up? Hi, Matt. Nice to meet you. Hello. What's up? Hello, sorcerer. (laughs) (laughs) Not a warlock, though, right? No, definitely not a warlock. Uh, Okay. 
Hashtag not a warlock. <laughs> not all warlocks. <laughs> How do you like my costume, Joe? I opened up the stream and I stared at it for about 20 seconds thinking, has LML lost his mind? What is, what's happening here? It's like, there's horns, there's bells, and then I finally got it. But for quite a while, I thought maybe you were something out of like the Muppets. Well, see, what you missed was the San Rixian opening. Holy hell. <laughs> what do you think, Joseph? How have I done, I'm Joey McWizards? <laughs> I appreciate the eyebrow darkening, especially. Oh, yeah. I hand drew these strokes for you, bro. Well, it looks pretty good. Can you guys try to talk <laughs> over each other to make it, like, perfect? Well, if we try really hard, I bet we can. I just can't do it. With me. I mean, no, I can't interrupt my. I can't interrupt myself. I just want to listen to myself talk. True love at last. <laughs> Two elements. I know this is great. Where's your vitamin water? It'll just wait till all of us mythheads show up at Con of Thrones, all wearing antlers and horns of various kinds. Oh, uh, yeah, toast, toast. Here, cheers. The there we go. All right. And uh, shout out to uh, since I'm LML right now. Shout out to Codfish the Steelbender who. Uh, Indicated that the uh, communion for the Church Church of Starry Wisdom might be related to this type of plant or leaf. So instead of the body of Christ, it's the body of Garth. The body of Garth. Of which we partake. And it's trans-sub-Garthiation that happens. <laughs> I never heard of smoking the Green Lord, but I guess that could be a thing. It's like riding the dragon, smoking the Green Lord. We can come yep. up with a hundred of them, and we will. That's right. That's right. There's no limit to the amount of uh, Garth cannabis crossover humor that can be constructed. So, all right, I'll go back to drawing now. All right, thank you for pop. Well, it's, we did need we did need Joe to get a full. We did need. Oh yeah, my god! <laughs> I'm sorry, right, I suppressed the laughter for quite some time. <laughs> I was wondering if you were like throwing up there or something. But uh, by the way, Amanda, I do want to take a minute to compliment you on your Val the Wildling outfit this is great this is one of the characters that everyone wants to see brought to life so yeah definitely i want to see your pin you. you made yourself <laughs> it's cute Amanda, it's I like perfect it. thank you that's a great it's costume lovely. thank you so um going back to we were talking about patch face and what we were thinking um might be what's going on with the, the drowning and i did a whole video on it i'm not going to get too into it but um i do think that the drowned god is related to the magic is probably related to the old gods and children of the forest just like all magic is probably related in some form of fashion it just depends on how the practitioner decides to harness it um when with melisandre's vision with patch face with the skulls and the the mouth uh, looks like it's full of blood. I, I think that it might actually be an explanation as to how he survived the shipwreck um, because of that connection to the old gods and um, the children of the forest with the drowned god. It may actually be like a weirwood stigmata type of a sim symbol rather than actual blood. And so um, I, I think that that may be just uh, the author trying to, to um, pro provide us with some symbolism to kind of show us what's actually kind of going on with Patch Face. Um, I've talked about a lot of the um, Lovecraft references and how they can kind of relate to the children of the forest. And, and you did that as well, David, when you talked um, on your on Quinn's live stream um, 
think in February, actually. So um, I think that that might be hinting at what's going on with the drowned god is actually a similar type of magic. So, Yeah, that one was called the uh, Strange Creatures uh, stream that I did on Quinn's channels. Mm-hmm. One of the more that fun. That's a great one. Oh, so it's called the it's called the Forgotten Magical Creatures of a Song of Ice. Okay, cool. There it is. Yeah, yeah I'm actually pulling it up to uh, see if I can drop the link here in a second. But yeah, we talked about the old ones and the influence of the Lovecraftian old ones on the uh, the potential green men and the old ones of Lang. And I'm going to follow up that one actually with the full theory. But uh, that is on the Ideas of Ice and Fire YouTube channel uh, from a couple months back. So yeah, that's actually a fully edited podcast. It's not a stream. That's Just true. So you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, no, no, let's, yeah, you and spend a, a lot of time. One. Be sure to check it out. It's a really good one. Yeah, video editing is hard work. You definitely want to get full credit for that. <laughs> yeah, you do some good video work, Quinn. Thank you. As a Thank video good. editor by day. Yeah, it's kind of scary what, where you've taken your video editing to, actually, with the, with the latest Dune videos and stuff. I mean... Just wow. look at his screen right now. He's like in a different dimension with smoke and stuff. <laughs> just wait to see my live stream on the 31st. It's going to no. blow. I'm just He's just right next to LML. That smoke's just coming from him. <laughs> well, I will definitely be there on the 31st. What time is that, Quinn? That's 7 p.m. EST. Yes. Nice. It's going to be awesome. Well, I'll definitely be there. Yes, I will, and I'll be there too. I will be there in spirit. I'll be taking my kids trick or treating, but um, I wish I could go. I'll secretly, I know, I'll secretly be dying inside because I'm going to miss the live stream because um, you have some pretty good live streams, Gwen. Thank you. Um, good narrations and just good questions. So, um, yeah, I'll be, during the day I'll be there in spirit. All right. So, um, there is a Shakespeare work called The Tempest, and this is where we think. George Martin may have gotten a lot of his idea for the whole under the sea thingy thingy. So check this out. It says, Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Sea nymphs hourly ring his knell. Hark, now I hear them. Ding dong bell. So you've got some bells going off underwater. You've got sea nymphs, and of course, all of this comes from a character named Ariel, who is a spirit that has been trapped in a tree. Uh, so we've got the trapped in a tree goddess, uh, you know, spirit thing happening with the under the sea imagery and the ringing bells. And so you can see how some of this stuff was playing in Martin's mind when he fathomed this madness. So I just want to put that in because, again, Ravenous Reader is the is the author, the uh, not the author, but the, uh, the discoverer of this uh, Under the Sea wordplay, which we are going to revel in today. And she would, uh, I would not be doing it justice if I didn't read her poetry, because she just loves the poetry influences on A Song of Ice and Fire. So anyways, uh, we've got the, so we've talked about sort of the basics of Patchface here. Um, and there is, there's a couple others where, oh, here's a good one, which compares... Uh, well, I'll just read it. So, Littlefinger gestured languidly. A trade envoy from Lys once observed to me that Lord Stannis must love his daughter very well, since he directed hundreds of statues of her all along the walls of Dragonstone. <laughs> My lord, I had to tell him, those are gargoyles, he chuckled. Sir Axel might serve for Shireen's father, but in my experience, the more bizarre and shocking a tale, the more apt it is to be repeated. 
Stannis keeps an especially grotesque fool, a lackwit with a tattooed face. Grand Maester Pycelle gaped at him aghast. Surely you do not mean to suggest that Lady Solis would bring a fool into her bed. You'd have to be a fool to want to bed Solis Florence, said Littlefinger. Doubtless Patchface reminded her of Stannis. And the best lies contain within them nuggets of truth, enough to give a listener pause. As it happens, this fool is utterly devoted to the girl and follows her everywhere. They even look somewhat alike. Shireen has a mottled, half-frozen face as well. Pycelle was lost. But that is from Grayscale, that near killed her as a babe with a poor thing. I like my tale better, said Littlefinger, and so will the small folk. Most of them believe that if a woman eats rabbit while pregnant, the child will be born with long, floppy ears. <laughs> uh, the screen was stuck on Amanda, but I'm sure no one was complaining, so yeah. Deal with it. <laughs> it happens. It happens. But there you go. That was. Uh, so what do you guys think of that quote there? So that's a pretty interesting quote. I think that it kind of shows a little bit of symbolism with this full character and possibly um, cuckolding um, a kingly type character. Uh, I've talked about how the uh, patch base may be providing some symbolism for a drowned and resurrected hero. Uh, who may uh, have eventually like fought over a woman, perhaps, and so we see uh, him likened to kind of a, a cuck or um, a man who's cuckolding another man and um, getting with this, you know, uh, getting with his wife and um, kind of on the down low, getting um, different. Um, yeah, that's kind of funny, isn't it? The, yeah. the whole idea of when you. When you cuckold somebody, it's called giving them horns. So, like when Cersei mm-hmm. has Jamie impregnate her the first time, she's like, I want Robert horned. So now we've got a whole extra mm-hmm. thing where we've got a horned guy cuckolding another horned guy. That's very horny. Exactly. And there's a exactly. lot of fertility symbolism, especially, you know, considering they're talking about siring a child. They're at the end, they're talking about a pregnant woman eating too much rabbit and getting rabbit ears. Again, lots of uh, fertility symbolism, especially with the rabbit as um, as a fertility symbolism, as a, as a sorry, as a fertility symbol. Um, and then uh, that links back to Danny with her 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 floppy ears hat you know because you know patch face is always about his hats um and then also gilly who is the pregnant uh rabbit keeper up north uh watching around in a warren nice and patch face even ends up with um like rabbit and and uh squirrel pelts uh uh as they make a new motley for him when they get up north that's warmer and they make it out of rabbit and squirrel pelts. So that's continued uh, floppy ear rabbit symbolism. The hat is a squirrel, though. It's it's a squirrel. Um, oh, little, is it? Yeah, it's it. The actual hat itself that has the antlers and everything is a is huh. like made out of squirrel. Everything else, like his outfit, though, is. Are you, are you are you dissing my costume? Are you are you suggesting that? No, I love I, your costume. Winter, you oh, have okay. to do you have to do winter version patch face yeah. with the you are summer version. Patch face. Mm. You sweet uh, summer child. <laughs> and of course, um, we have talked a bunch about Patch Face in the uh, Sacred Order of Green Zombies series. I don't want to rehash all that, but of course, Patch Face draws from Santa Claus and the Horn God mythology and Krampus and all that kind of stuff. He's, he's a particularly insane version of all that line of symbolism. Uh, but, you know, so, like Krampus is kind of insane. And uh, Santa Claus is a little kooky, to be honest, uh, when you compare him to someone like 
Garth, you know, not Garth, but like Sir Nunos or Pan, who's a bit more serious. But there's a range of these figures, and Patchface is essentially should be viewed uh, as the insane version of of all that. So if you want to, if you want to get a little more background on uh, the connection to Green Man mythology, then check out the Sacred Order of Green Zombies. That's where you can find that. Uh, but let's see. I've got one more about Celise giving Stannis horns with Patchface. So this is Stannis talking, or this is Davos talking, rather. It says, when I was smuggling, I learned that some men believe everything and some nothing. We met both sorts. And there's another tale being spread as well. Yes, Stannis bit off the word. Celise has given me horns and tied fool's bells to the end of each. My daughter fathered by a half-wit jester. A tale as vile as it is absurd. Renly threw it in my teeth when we met to parlay. You would need to be as mad as Patchface to believe such a thing. So it's just sort of highlighting just what we were talking about. You know, Stannis being horned, given horns uh, by this whole thing. So. And uh, Moonboy, right. too. What's that? Moonboy. There's also Jamie thinking about Moonboy. And, you know, she's, she's with everybody and Moonboy, for all I know. So there's um, that as well, because it's like an inner mantra in Jamie's head that he's she's doing everybody. And then he always finishes out and moon boy for all I know. So um, yep, it's yep. also more that uh, fool and cuckolding type of um, language going on. So. I was also thinking about uh, Lan the Clever, where the a similar sort of unassuming person like Lan the Clever is supposed to be that he like, well, what Patchface does, his rhymes, and the reason he got recruited was he was very clever when he was over in, uh, before his drowning. And then the cuckolding thing, sort of a foolish character that sneaks into the Lord's bed. That's something that goes back quite a ways in the mythology. Very cool. Thank you, Joe. And by the way, Joe, did you have um, any other random thoughts based on some of the stuff we talked about already that you wanted to pipe in? Uh, I didn't catch much before I jumped on. I was driving, so okay, no I'm worries. just catching just up now. <laughs> cool. Just wanted to give you a chance. All right. Um, so now we're about to dive into the actual patch face quotes. Uh, and I thought I would, I thought I was just going to pull them out of the text and put them in sort of a list. Uh, but as soon as I started looking into it, it seems that the actual scenes that are happening around the quotes most of the time act as context for what he's talking about. Either Patchface is reacting to something that's happening around him or George and, or I should say George is hiding symbolic clues, you know, around the action of when Patchface talks. So the clash of Kings prologue is where we get like half fully half of the Patchface quotes. It's kind of the, his big one. He pops up in other chapters just for little bits and pieces, but we're going to go, we're going to spend a good amount of time just on this prologue because it has, like I said, about half the quotes. So before we go into that, I just want to sum up the what under the sea means in case anybody has missed it. Uh, I just want to make sure everyone is sort of on the same page. So the idea is that the underwater realm, the ocean, has long been viewed as you know, a metaphor for the underworld, just as space is called the cosmic ocean and it's viewed as you know the other world or you might see an underground area like a cave uh, shout out to Wiz the Smith's Hollow Hills essay. You know, underground places are sometimes symbolic of the underworld, and so is the ocean. And in A Song of Ice and Fire, the underworld or the afterlife, uh, the one that we care about, is the Weirwood Net. That's where we know that souls actually go after they die. The Green Seers go there. It seems like all of the children of the forest kind of go there in some sense. Uh, and so what Ravenous Reader has discovered is that anytime 
Patchface is talking about something that happens, quote, under the sea, what he's actually talking about is things that are happening inside the weirwood net, what we call the weirwood net, the realm of the green seers. And the pun is basically green sea versus green seers. The green seers live in the green sea. And so everything that happens under the sea, like the squishers, people drowning, when people drown, that's actually symbolic of them dying and going into the weirwood net and then being resurrected, like like John will be or like Cold Hands was or like I think the green zombies were. And when I say weirwood net, I'm really talking about you know, John is a skin changer, obviously. He's not a green seer. But when he dies, he's going to go into his wolf, which is the color of a weirwood tree. And it's that skin changer power that's going to preserve his soul and allow him to be reborn fully. So he's going to be reborn from the sea. And of course, one of the things that's prophesied about Azor High is that he's a hero that will be reborn in the sea. And this is not talking about Azor High as a merling or as somebody that literally is resurrected in the ocean like a like the drowned god says, um, but rather somebody who's actually reborn from the sea of the weirwood net. And so that is everything that we're going to talk about when we talk about Under the Sea. We're going to be sort of looking at it, uh, we'll look at it basically from all angles, but the main angle that we're considering is the insight that Patchface might be giving us about all things weirwood net. So with that said, Let's dive into this A Clash of Kings prologue. So it begins with the comet's tail spreading across the dawn, a red slash that bled above the crags of Dragonstone like a wound in the pink and purple sky. That's actually the first line of A Clash of Kings. So this whole chapter really is about fire and blood, comets, dragons. Um, It's all throughout. The Crescent is wandering around Dragonstone, considering all the dragons and how they might come to life and how he's seeing omens in the comets, and he's thinking about Melisandre, who's trying to wake stone dragons. So there's a kind of a motif running through this whole chapter, and it definitely begins with that first sentence. Um, And so it continues with Crescent thinking that the comet and the white raven are both omens. And if you think about the white raven, the white raven signals the change of the season, while the comet is called the sword that slays the season. And of course, according to my theory... The comet is the one that brought the long night. So it literally slayed the rotation of the seasons. And so we can see a similarity right away with the white raven and the comet as omens of the change of the seasons. Um, So it says, standing atop Sea Dragon Tower, uh, or at least, I'm sorry, that's not a quote. That's my summary. So Crescent is standing atop Sea Dragon Tower when the chapter opens. He's looking out to sea from Sea Dragon Tower. So that's already some sea wordplay. And he's remembering, uh, he's thinking about those gargoyles and wondering if they can talk. So we're talking about communication with the spirit world already. And then it says, um, uh, also that Crescent places himself in between the wyvern and the hellhound. And he thinks about themselves as friends. He's essentially now one of the gargoyles gazing out to sea. Uh, And then twice, Dragonstone is described as a rock in the sea. It says, uh, Stannis was the king of a smoking rock in a great salt sea, yet a king nonetheless. And then it also says, uh, Dragonstone was a lonely citadel in the wet waste, surrounded by storm and salt, with the smoking shadow of the mountain at its back. So Dragonstone can be thought of as a version of the dragon that has gone into the weirwood net, in my opinion. That's why it's surrounded by the sea. Um, And of course, that dovetails with the idea of a moon meteor falling into the sea, uh, which Dragonstone also symbolizes more, even more obviously. Uh, so 
we're working up to the first patch face quote. And basically, Pylos and Shireen are coming up the stairs because Shireen wants to see the White Raven. And that's how the chapter starts. And so uh, it says, uh, Quinn, will you go ahead and read this quote, starting with where it says, Pylos was a polite youth. Pylos was a polite youth, no more than five and twenty, yet solemn as a man of sixty. If only he had more humor, more life in him. That was what was needed here. Grim places needed lightning, not somnity. And Dragonstone was grim beyond a doubt, a lonely citadel in the wet waste surrounded by storm and salt, with the smoking shadow of the mountain at its back. A maester must go where he is sent, so Crescent had come here with his lord some twelve years past, and he had served and served well. Yet he had never loved Dragonstone, nor ever felt truly at home here. Of late, when he woke from restless dreams in which the red woman figured disturbingly, he often did not know where he was. The fool turned his patched and piebald head to watch Pylos climb the steep iron steps to the rookery. His bells rang with the motion. Under the sea, the birds have scales for feathers, he said, clang-a-langing. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I I forgot to tell you, I I do have to read the actual patch face quotes. That's all good. (laughs) All right, so that's our first one. I will open it up to the panel. What do you guys think? The birds have scales for feathers. What's that mean? I feel like it's dragons. Yeah, dragons, sea dragons, sea serpents. I just thought fish. Yeah, yeah, I went for fish. <laughs> yeah, because 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 if if you're in the ocean, then then a, the fish are basically the birds of the ocean. They're flying around the ocean. I mean, yeah, that's, if you're looking that's up. A good point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the way the quote is written to me, it's he's looking at Pylos. So mm-hmm. instead of it being a reference to the birds in the rookery where Pylos is going, I think it's like a direct quote to Pylos as a knight of the mind and knights wear scale mail. So I always think the birds have scales and so they have armor. That's cool. Um, so yeah, I like that a lot. That's, that's a good, and of course, none of these are going to be exclusionary. I think that the patch face rhymes are a great example of multiple meanings um, because besides whatever weirwood net clues that we're going to find, most of these prophecies also have literal application to the story like one of them is a prophecy of the red wedding which is obviously a very plot centric thing for patch face to see uh but it, the words will also have double meanings for symbolism so just remember that as we talk about these various meanings we're definitely not considering these as sort of uh exclusionary of, of one another so i like that i like the layer of the maesters as the knights of the mind wearing scale armor um and of course so here's the thing about Uh, The birds have scales for feathers, so we're describing the birds as fish. Well, like I said, the dragons, the the comet at least, is compared to the white raven right at the beginning of the chapter. And then later on in the chapter, there's a scene where uh, Crescent looks at the gargoyles, thinks about them waking or thinks about Melisandre waking dragons, and then immediately a bunch of ravens take wing and fly away. And so there's, there's a few allusions between birds and dragons that are going on in this chapter. Uh, and so when we talk about under the sea, the birds have scales, I do believe there's a layer of dragon idea that's going on there too. And of course, the whole idea of a dragon that goes under the sea is that it becomes a sea dragon. And we've seen that sea dragons and fish have been equated many times. Uh, my favorite one is the example of pike, which is both a fish and a weapon. 
uh, spear. And then, of course, it's also the castle pike where the sea dragon spear and fish went into the water. So lots of fish and dragon stuff going on, I would say. You know what I what else I was thinking about recently, especially with the quote about crabs later on? The, the house Celtigar, the, the house that I rep for, is a dragon-blooded people that become crabs instead of sea dragons like the Valerians. Uh, Valarians, sorry. Well, they become seahorses, which are very dragon-looking. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we see several iterations of the same idea of dragon people going under the sea and becoming a sea creature. We've got crabs, seahorses, and sea dragons and sea serpents, I would say. And crabs. Uh, yeah, crabs. Hashtag Team Crab. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, P- yeah, PKJ has crabs. <laughs> oh. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Terrible. No, I think Amanda can help you with that. Damn, Amanda, damn. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to the mythical astronomy uh, world. <laughs> You're, yeah, full, full myth head now. Uh, in any case, uh, so as we go on through the chapter, dragon dreams are mentioned. Uh, I had bad dreams, Shireen told him, about the dragons. They were coming to eat me. The child had been plagued by nightmares as far back as Maester Crescent could recall. We've talked of this before, he said gently. The dragons cannot come to life. They are carved of stone, child. Shireen was unconvinced. What about that thing in the sky? Dalla and Matrice were talking by the well, and Dalla said she heard the red woman tell mother that it was dragon's breath. If the dragons are breathing, doesn't that mean they're coming to life? So we've got dragon dreams, and we've got dragons coming to life, the gargoyles coming to life, direct comparisons between the comets and the dragons. So like I said, it's basically the dominant theme of the chapter in which we find all this patch face shit is dragons coming to life specifically. And we know that the whole idea of Azor High, the dragon going into the Weirwood Net, is a death transformation and a resurrection type of thing. So... That quote uh, reminds me of Isilla talking about the lords of fire underneath the water breathing out the mm. mist that gives people grayscale. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I think I was – yeah, I've got, I've got that, that whole stone men idea like somewhere on the back burner. But they do seem, especially given that specific quote, that the first stone men – were created from Valerians who were drowned on the Rhoyne by Garen's curse, uh, really implies the stone men as dragon people who have gone into the sea and transformed. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we'll eventually do the Rhoynish chapter with uh, the, or the chapters on the Rhoyne with Tyrion and him going into the water and all that. But yeah, Painkiller Jane, you're right on the money there. Oh, Brian Taylor with the super chats. He says, under the sea, the mermaids smoke seaweed with patch face. Jesus, repent and thou shalt be saved. Yes, it is. Uh, four, <laughs> 421 East Coast time. So it is time to partake of the body of Garth, if you have it. I'm wondering the what part of his of body Garth is coming from. It's like his you. hair? Like, what's going on? From his crown? I don't know. Seems weird. Who? <laughs> Patch the Gar- No, the Garth, uh, the Garth weed. <laughs> where are we harvesting this from on it? Well, you know where all this power is. His beard. I mean... If you're oh, just snipping about off the beard. Parts. Yeah, there's only one. There's only one answer, really. <laughs> yeah, I know where Amanda's I mean, going. Fertility. So I mean, there's, <laughs> there's only one place to have power. In. We're we're right smoking there. pole, guys. We're smoking pole. <laughs> right there. Secret ingredient. Secret ingredient. <laughs> All right. Well, we're serving a bunch of up lumberjacks. the lumberjacks. Uh, yeah, 
<laughs> totally. I cut down trees, I skip and jump, I like to press wildflowers. Wait, is this extra confusing if I do the lumberjack song and then patch face regalia? All right, let's yeah, uh it's extra let's great. keep going. So um the conversation then flows seamlessly from comets and dragons to again the white raven and the fact that winter is coming. And then it says, Quinn, go ahead. Will it get cold now? Shireen was a summer child and had never known true cold. In time, Crescent replied, if the gods are good, they will grant us a warm autumn and a bountiful harvest so we might prepare for the winter to come. The small folks said that a long summer meant an even longer winter, but the maester saw no reason to frighten the child with such tales. Patchface rang his bells. It is always summer under the sea, he intoned. The merwives wear nanny moans in their hair and weave gowns of silver seaweed. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Shireen giggled. I should like a gown of silver seaweed. Under the sea, it snows up, said the fool. And the rain is dry as bone. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Will it truly snow? The child asked. It will, Crescent said, but not for years yet. I pray and then not for long. Ah, here is Pylos with the bird. And the, uh, the bird is described as snow white as soon as it arrives. So the idea of, you know, bringing the turn of the seasons is extra emphasized. So we've got two quotes here, guys. It's always summer under the sea. The merwives wear nanny moans in their hair. They weave gowns of silver seaweed and it snows up and the rain is dry as bone. So that's quite the offering there. Bubbles. Who wants to go first? Well, I think I think it snows up and the rain is dry as bone. It's, it's bubbles, obviously, right? It's talking about bubbles because bubbles, yeah, bubbles are just air and they go up. And then uh, it's always summer under the sea. I, um, that's an interesting one. There's like um, no change. There's no the change. Under the sea, it's like, you know. It, it's right? still... Yeah, and then Crescent also refers to the sea as a waste, like a wet waste earlier in that chapter because yes. it's kind of like still and unchanging. Uh, yeah, Danny has a it has a line in, um, I believe it's uh, in Clash when she's wandering around the Red Waste, and she actually does say that the riverbed was as dry as a dead man's bones mm-hmm. and things yeah. like that. Well, upturned, like it... it Remember when we were talking about Naga's bones um, and what they look like, like a weirwood tree? Like, under the sea, in real life, ships look like they blend in with the ground. So it could definitely be, they could be white, they could be, like, horrific. So I definitely get that connection. Makes sense. Yeah, good point. And, and it's also... <laughs> it, it, you know when it um when he says it's always summer under the sea i don't want summer to go on forever that is just horrible yeah no thanks it's like yeah. a uh like really long dog days of summer forever in a day when it's hot as hell outside and it's like a million degrees and walking outside is like on the surface of the sun like when you can cook an egg on your car Wait, it also is that a it also thing? sorry <laughs> yeah I... <laughs> It is, and I know what you're talking about uh, because of where I'm from. Uh, but uh, I, I do think, so always summer, it, it almost implies that the weirwood net is outside the cycles of time and the cycles of the seasons, right? Just like it says the weirwood uh, sits astride the river of time and is not moved by it. So it's kind of this thing that's outside of 
the cycles and the constraints of everything. And then we also, I also have to think about, you know, the wolf named Summer that went with Bran literally underground. Uh, and we talked, I love talking about the idea of the sun going underground at night as the underground sun or the sun of night, the night sun, uh, you know, the Zabalba concept. Uh, and so when we have literally Bran, who is a, a sun god figure um, going underground with his wolf named Summer, it's literally summer under the sea. Uh, so there's, there's a few layers to that one. And what do you guys also, think of that? Um, when you, you, you reference Zabalba, another parallel to that is the ancient Egyptian myth of Ra going underground every night and resurrecting the sun. And uh, he's definitely a, a solar king figure, totally. which is very interesting. And um, kind of, it's a little bit different than Zabalba, but it's the same kind of myth. Oh, sure. Yeah. Different, yeah. different culture, but similar concept. Yeah. So, similar I, concept. so I have a question for you, Emil, uh, Emil, uh, David, uh, with the, <laughs> sorry, I'm tired. <laughs> so the, the, uh, the light of night being the, the, the night, the sun and the night going, you know, rampaging, doing his wild hunt. Would that be the sun King and summer under the sea type of situation? Uh, it could be. So if you think about it, well, so when, when the sun is underground, it's nighttime. Uh, and so that would be a description of the long night. I mean, that's the whole idea. When the maiden made of light turns her face, that's the bright face of the sun turning away and hiding. It's like, just like hiding under a cave. And then the lion of night comes out. So that's like, yeah, it's the night sun concept. Totally. <laughs> Okay, so one thing that I noticed, um, and we've talked, to, and I've, you and Ravish Reader have talked about the Nenny Mums before. Um, so the Nenny Mums is not uh, an actual thing that we're aware of. Um, it sounds like kind of a made-up um, convention. However, in the sea, there's actually something called an anemone, which sounds a lot like the Nenny Mums. And uh, the anemone is found in the sea, but it's also found in um, on land. There's another. There's a flower called the anemone, and it is very symbolic of the death of a corn king type figure. It's a, the death of Adonis, um, and wow. he's kind of an analog to um, Attis and Temuz. And um, when he died, his blood was actually turned into the anemone uh, flower. And so when we see this um, breaking of the cycle of seasons, it's always summer under the sea. And the death of Adonis is actually one of those things that's a catalyst for um, for the changing of the seasons. So we're seeing kind of um, a, a mention of the seasons being broken, and then we're given kind of a direct reference to one of those cycling seasons changings uh, myths with the merwives wearing nanny moans in their hair. So um, so what I'm seeing is possibly um, uh, a reference to this dying and resurrecting God. And I think that you were talking about um, that in one of our, our chats you had saw something with under the sea, it snows up with this dying and resurrecting God as well, David. Totally, totally. Um, but there's actually a catch in the chat. Uh, Chow AJ is saying, if fish represent dragons, then merfolk would be half dragons, like Targaryens. And that's the whole idea is that this dragon green seer goes under the sea, becomes a fish. So he'd be, he would be a merfolk or the, you know, a merling, a merman, merman. <laughs> uh, so he's, the, per, uh, the anemone flowers are purple, are they not, Amanda? Yes. 
Okay, um, so so if they've got I, so a silver seaweed, so that that it's giving you Targaryen colors essentially with purple flowers and a silver dress, which could be uh, evocative of silver hair. So I like that layer to it. Um, but uh, and of course, silver seaweed um, also kind of sounds like. I mean, it sounds like a psychedelic joke there. We're talking about weed that helps you see. So it sounds like a psychedelic substance. And that reminds me of, you know, just the weirwood paste and all that stuff. Well, what I was going to add um, is... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I have purple anemones tattooed on my arm. and Oh, nice. Yeah, I have them underneath my Fenrir. And they actually, in flower lore... Here's my super flower lore nerd knowledge for you guys. Mean forsaken. Different colors mean different things. But I chose the purple ones because they mean forsaken, which is super interesting if you think about the Ironborn. Because I kind of feel like in like the forsaken chapter, I don't know if that's complete yes. tinfoil that just came to me because I realized I had anemones tattooed on my arm. <laughs> that, but, no, that is an awesome um, observation. And when you're, we're talking about this dying and resurrecting hero, just like Christ, um, it, that's a one thing that he he says when he's on the cross is why ha, you know why have you forsaken me? Yes. And so it's it's one of those you know um, really visceral moments, you know, one of those really visceral words that you you feel um, if you grow up in the Christian church is that the forsaken um, term. And so I kind of see that with Aaron, with his torture prior to his, um, he's almost being crucified. He's being, um, you know, put onto yeah. the mast of the ship. So uh, we're seeing kind of this hint at this dying and resurrecting Lord, because of course, Jesus is the corn king as well. Yeah. So. Do not forsake me. Yeah, like, um, no, that's exactly what I was getting at. Like, there's there's a parallel to Christ there. And even in the Egyptian myth, I probably mentioned this before, um, in the Egyptian myth of uh, uh, where the cross comes from, Set, the god of chaos, Horus's grandfather, Osiris, the god of the underworld, literal corn king, um, he, Set is crucified on a Y-shaped cross. So getting a little off topic, though. So let's, in. yeah, so we, we, yeah, I was, I was just noticing how much we have left to go and how long we've been on. So, um, I do want to say one thing about under the sea, it snows up and the rain is dry as bone. So you guys are right that this does have to do with bubbles. And later there's a quote that says that under the sea, the smoke rises in bubbles. And that's what the whole thing about snowing up is about. It's really about smoke. So check this out, uh, ash specifically. So I've got a couple of great quotes about snow turning to ash or ash turning to snow. So let me just preface this by saying this is really heavy weirwood portal action. The weirwoods, and I'm going to get into this on the signs and portals thing, but the weirwood net is like a gateway between ice and fire. It's the transformation point between ice and fire. Um, And so what happens is there's several scenes where we see something fiery literally morph into something snowy. And one of those is where Melisandre is literally... Actually, it's Stannis looking into the fire. Hang on one second. I do have to tell you that this live stream is brought to you by Dayquil. I'm a little under the weather. So if I sound a little stuffy, under the weather. Uh, under, the, under the sea joke. 
Uh, that is why. So cut me some slack. But in any case, this is from a Storm of Swords, Davos. You saw it, sire? It was not like Stannis Baratheon to lie about such a thing. With mine own eyes, after the battle, when I was lost to despair, the Lady Melisandre bid me gaze into the hearth fire. The chimney was drawing strongly, and bits of ash were rising from the fire. I stared at them, feeling half a fool, but she did bid me look deeper, and the ashes were white, rising in the updraft, yet all at once it seemed as if they were falling. Snow, I thought. Then the sparks in the air seemed to circle and to become a ring of torches, and I was looking through the fire and down on some high hill in a forest. The cinders had become men in black behind the torches, and there were shapes moving through the snow. For all the heat of the fire, I felt a cold so terrible I shivered, and when I did, the sight was gone, the fire but a fire once again. But what I saw was real, I'd stake my kingdom on it. So what's just happened is that Stannis has looked through the fire and he's seen a vision of the fist of the first men. That's what that is, that hill with black brothers with torches and a ring. And so we've got a literal portal happening here. We've got something that's fiery turning into something snowy. And literally you can see the rising ash turn into falling snow. And then there's another quote that builds on that, which says, the ashes fell like a soft gray snow. And this is a clash of King's Bran when Bran is looking around burnt Winterfell uh, uh, through the eyes of his direwolf. It says, so the ashes fell like snow. Then he padded over dry needles and brown leaves to the edge of the wood where the pines grew thin. Beyond the open fields, he could see the great piles of man rocks stark against the swirling flames. The wind blew hot and rich with the smell of blood and burnt meat so strong he began to slobber. Yet as one smell drew them onward, others warned them back. He sniffed at the drifting smoke. Men, many men, many horses, and fire, fire, fire. No smell was more dangerous, not even the hard, cold smell of iron, the stuff of man claws and hard skin. The smoke and ash clouded his eyes, and in the sky he saw a great winged snake whose roar was a river of flame. So this is the quote with the dragon of Winterfell, the fire dragon vision hatching from Winterfell. And this is where the ashes are falling like a soft gray snow. So... Basically, all this transformation between fire and ice, this is Jon Snow resurrection talk. And so when we talk about snow falling up, that's actually rising snow, like Jon Snow rising from the snow. And so that is the deeper, deeper layer, I think, that's going on here. So check this out. It says, um, I have no place, Jon wanted to say. I'm a bastard. I have no rights, no name, no mother, and now not even a father. The words would not come. I don't know. And he's replying to Mormont, saying, I don't know if I'm a man of the Night's Watch. Mormont says, I do. The cold winds are rising, snow. Beyond the wall, the shadows lengthen. So we've got all this idea, like the cold winds are rising, and we need Jon Snow to rise to meet the cold winds, right? And when he's murdered, he's literally fallen into the snow. So when he resurrects, he will be rising from the snow. So under the sea, the snow falls up. It's not only the whole ash to smoke thing, but it's Jon Snow rising from the dead. You know, I always wondered if uh, this quote in Dance of Dragons from the sacrifice from Asha's point of view is related to that. Uh, it's uh, a raven was perched atop one 
pulling at the tatters of burned flesh that clung to its blackened skull. The blowing snow had covered the ashes at the base of the pyre and crept up the dead man's leg as far as his ankle. The old gods mean to bury him, Asha thought. This was no work of theirs. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a burned man being buried in the snow. And and this also goes back to the whole gods, Ned. You know, the where are all the people? You know, uh, they've never seen a king before. And it's like under the snow, that whole line that implies John Snow as a king under the snow. So it's kind of a running motif with John as being this dragon under the snow. And that's why I mentioned the quote with the Winterfell dragon, because that whole symbolism of a dragon rising from Winterfell as it's buried in snow is really talking about Jon Snow as the dragon that's secret, that's hidden in Winterfell, that's going to rise. So there you go. I've monologued enough, but there you go. Joe Magician, what do you think of that claptrap? The what? The claptrap. What's a claptrap? This is a claptrap. Oh, my God. Um, Seems reasonable. Uh, Snow and ash often mix. Uh, You get get ash from volcanoes. You get them from meteor strikes. It's all sorts of interesting ways that it could be used, symbolizing natural events and also um, even individual characters like you're talking about. Ramsey is a character that rises from snow, too, to become a Bolton, become the Lord of the Oh, Oh, very true. And he's very parallel to John. He's like the evil John. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the ugly John. Crucified men, <laughs> yeah. technically. Their sigil is a crucified man. Quinn, we had yeah, a request. Guess, uh, sorry. We had a request for Quinn to say, I am Batman. I just thought it would be a good time. I'm Batman. There you go. Can you do the whole thing? <laughs> What's the whole thing? From from the, the 90s show? Oh, you might be too young. I'm I might be too young. Which 90s show? Uh, the... Uh, the animated one, right? Yeah, the animated one. The Justice Tim, League, or no, Tim Bruce Tim. Ah, uh, it's been so long. I don't know. The OG Harley Quinn. Never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, Magnar of now is uh, saying, if the sea is symbolic of the underworld, does a sea dragon allude to a dead, undead dragon? Absolutely, absolutely. This That's is a transformed, you. resurrected dragon. Uh, yes, no question. Danny becomes a dragon swimming in the Dothraki Sea, which is going to be the subject of my next mythical astronomy episode. And uh, she absolutely is cruising for resurrection and transformation. Oh, and I, I guess I did sort of skip something. So the whole point of the rising ash, as we talked about on the Weirwood Compendium, is that there's a model of the Weirwood tree that is created at the site of the meteor impacts. There's a rising column of ash, which is like a mushroom cloud. And if you pull up the picture of a mushroom cloud, it basically looks like a burning tree. You have this trunk, and then you have this sort of bloom at the top. And it's all gray with like fire on the inside of it. And so what George has done, as I've explained, is he's created this parallel between uh, this ash rising ash cloud and the ash tree, Yggdrasil, which is obviously the model of the Weirwoods. And so what you can also think about the meteors like a, like a rain that triggers mushrooms and the mushroom cloud springs up from the spot where the meteor rain falls. And that's also why uh, the weirwood net has a lot of mushroom symbolism. Blood Raven has mushrooms on his face and the whole idea of an underground root network. Uh-oh. That's not good. Quick, somebody start singing. Not the rain's down, down in Castamere. <laughs> Quinn, you're so much better at singing. Though. Are you 
The proud Lord said, I must bow so low. Sorry. <laughs> oh, the stream didn't oh, crash. Never wow. mind. Wow. Yeah, I was worried Recovery. for a second. No, Can anyone tell me what just happened? Um, uh, we're not sure, but we sang for you. Quinn mm-hmm. did a very great cover, <laughs> and you were just frozen for a while. Yep. Okay. But but, but you guys you guys all continued to be together while I was frozen. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's yes. good. That's yeah. good. As long as people were entertained. Oh yeah. So I was somewhere in the middle of talking about the rising ash and the mushroom cloud and stuff. You guys get that, right? Yes. Okay. So that's the whole thing. Is like when we talk about smoke rising up and the ash rising up, it's a another coded weirwood reference. Is the whole point. So it was under the sea we find the ash tree, Yggdrasil, essentially rising like, like snow. And of course, the weirwoods are also snow white and bone white. And we see a few weirwood trees that are frozen, uh, which gives us sort of the second half of the weirwood ice, uh, fire to ice transformation. So, uh, Amanda, so what were you talking about? Oh, um, I just exited out of one, of one of the screens, but here is the sigil for... There's the bells, and then we see the stags right there. So um, there's only like four sigils that actually have the very one of them is House Black Tide with the green and black and the bale symbolism. And then this is um, House Heart with the bells, with the stag. And then I think the other one was House Bowling. Let me see if I can just. um, And then there's another one uh, that has strawberries, but it also has green in it. here we go. I'll get it really quick. Um, house bowling. Here it is. And there is also this um, pattern with the bend, with this strike going through. But as you can see, we have the bells and we have another stag and then we have the strike, um, which is and with house moss. Um, of course, Robert won the battle of the bells, too, didn't he? Yes, he did. There's another bend. There's the green and gray bells, but we have our green, we have our bells, we have our, um, there's house bowling with the bend and house heart. Let me see if I can pull it. That also has the bend in it. House heart does. This, the stags are actually within the bend and we see the three stags. And so um, there's there's something going on with the actual um, that um, I guess I'll probably have to take a look at eventually. Hmm. But there, there's a pattern. So you're looking at it. It's definitely indicative of like baseborn children taking on the sigil of their their parents' house and doing the Ben Sinister on there. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's sometimes used for bastards. Um, I know that in A Song of Ice and Fire, the colors are um, inversed. However, I need to take a look at kind of how those bends are actually used in the real world. But it's something to be aware of. Uh, real quick, uh, Ravenous Readers reminding me to uh, explain why Patchface is red and green. Uh, and not only is that the colors of, the, of Santa Claus and the Holly King and all that stuff, um, it's also the colors of the eyes of the children of the forest. And when Patchface was drowned, he was a child. He was a child that could do magic. So the whole description of Patchface, there's a lot of children of the forest, green seer stuff besides just the stag man. It's the red and green. 
It's the fact that he was a child who could do magic and speak a bunch of different languages, and he could sing prettily in many tongues. So he's a singing child. Uh, yeah, so that's the idea. Yeah, Thanks and the word piebald used for his hair and patched is basically saying that his hair is also black and white. Um, and he has patches of white inside of his black hair. And also patched and piebald is ties into the dappled symbolism that we find with many children of the forest analogs, too. Have you and guys it, ever heard of, uh, just real quick, have you ever heard of... Uh, like people, this happens in people too. Like Amanda can probably back me up. You'll people will have like a white patch of their hair. I've heard it called an angel's kiss, which is interesting if you think about it in the context of the drowned lord. He kissed yeah. him back to life. <laughs> For some people, I, I think that I was reading somebody had just linked something uh, concerning piebald, and some people believe that to be a birthmark. And I do know that there is. Um, a genetic condition or a genetic anomaly where people are born with a white patch just right in the front. Um, Their furlock. It's called piebaldism. And of course, Bloodraven has a red patch sort of on his face too. So that's cool. But let me uh, me keep it moving here or else this will be another four-hour stream and uh, I don't (laughs) think I could do it. So... (laughs) uh, This this thing isn't as heavy as it looks, but it is starting to get a little... uh, Anyways, that's okay, though. The things I do for love. Um, so <laughs> after all this stuff, we get to the next bit. Um, so they've... Uh, Maester... Uh, the young guy, what's his name? Pylos comes down with the white raven, shows it to Shireen. It's white as snow. Shireen gives a cry of delight at the sight of the bird and seems excited about the idea of snow. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then we get this next quote. So go ahead, if you will, Quinn. This is the Lady Shireen, he told the raven. The bird bobbed its pale head up and down as if it were bowing. Lady, it croaked. Lady. The child's mouth gaped open. It talks. A few words, as I said. They are clever, these birds. Clever bird. Clever man. Clever, clever fool. Said Patchface, jangling. Oh, clever, clever, clever fool. He began to sing. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. He sang, hopping from one foot to the other and back again. The shadows come to stay, my lord, stay, my lord, stay, my lord. He jerked his head with each word, the bells in his antlers sending up a clangor. The white raven screamed and went flapping away to perch on the iron railing of the rookery stairs. Shireen seemed to grow smaller. He sings that all the time. I told him to stop, but he won't. It makes me scared. Make him stop. Uh, what a creep. Like, what, is, <laughs> what is wrong with Stannis? Like, who, who lets this guy around their children? I don't know. I don't get it. And so, actually, yeah, let's dad. just keep rolling. There's, there's a second part to this quote. Let's just roll through it all. Um, so, real right then, we get that whole three-page story of Patchface drowning and being washed up on the shore. And Maester Crescent thinks about how he could have silenced him then, but now he can't silence him. And then it continues with Patchface singing. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. The fool sang on, swinging his head and making his bells cling and clatter. Bong dong, ringling, bong dong. Lord, the white raven streaked. Lord, lord, lord. A fool sings what he will, the maester told his anxious princess. You must not take his words to heart. On the morrow he may remember another song, and this one will never be heard again. He can sing prettily in four tongues, Lord Stephen had written. 
So what do you guys think of that? Shadows come to dance. What's it mean? Joe Magician. The shadows come to dance. Well, I mean, Melisandre releases the shadows. The others are the white shadows. It's likely if he's actually seeing into the green sight world, and that's where the others come from, he's kind of talking about them, I guess, coming through. And there's lots of shadows that we see at the wall. Lots of characters uh, cast their shadows, and they sort of dance, especially around the night fires. Excellent. That's the right answer. Woo! I did it. I I think the shadows dancing... I think I think the most obvious is re- reference is Melisandre, obviously. But it's curious because if he's talk if he's talking about Melisandre, he doesn't he's not he's not like the fire comes to dance. He's like the shadows come to dance. And we know what's unique about Melisandre as opposed to other red priests is that she's also a shadow binder. And so that's very curious. And he's saying that the shadows come to stay. And I think he's what he's saying is that the shadows are coming, the shadows are joining the game. They're coming to play this game along with the rest of us. So watch out, basically. He's, yep. he's, he says, he says, yeah, the birds are clever and the man is clever, but I'm the really clever one. I know what's going on and you better watch out. So, Absolutely. Yep. That's a statement of his, his knowledge of the deeper truths. And the ultimate shadow dance is going to be the fight between the others and the Night's Watch, who are also called Shadows in Black. And if they are resurrected like John... Uh, then they are really shadows in that sense that they are they are part ghosts. They're whites. They're shadows that have come to stay. Like look at think about cold hands. Cold hands is a shadow that has come to stay. The others are shadows that have come to stay. They are people that are part ghost that are holding on to their life. And yeah, we see there's there's a Davos layer here too, and there's a tie to Miriam's door and the tent of dancing shadows. Uh, where Danny's baby was delivered. But let me uh, read on here. So Patchface is interrupted by news of Davos's arrival. He's, sing- he's singing The Shadows Come to Dance. And then uh, somebody comes in and says, oh, Patchface is here. And that ties Patchface, or that ties Davos into the mix. But of course, Davos is the one who rode Melisandre into Storm's End to deliver her shadow, her shadow baby. Um, and then... The boat that rescued Davos is called Shyala's Dance. Okay, now Shyala is a word that is very close to Shayla. And Shayla is another name for Kali, who is a dancing death goddess. Not really just a death goddess, but it's one of her roles. And her dancing is one of the most famous parts of her myth. Her dancing, uh, she's originally dancing to destroy these demons, uh, but eventually it continues on after the demons are dead and it threatens the entire universe. And so her mate Shiva lies down beneath her dancing so that she'll see that she's hurting her love and stop dancing. And she does. And so that's why we often see this image of Kali dancing on top of Shiva. But in any case, Kali is one of those, uh, she's kind of a death goddess, but really she represents the void, the cosmic womb tomb. So she supposedly exists before everything and after everything. So she's both the creator and the destroyer. And I've talked about this a little bit when I've talked about the cosmic ocean um, and the idea of three-headed trios, where one head devours the dying, there's a middle head that nobody understands, and there's another head from which the reborn emerge. So the, the middle head is like Kali. It's like the Bardo realm. It's the, the blackness of in between the stars. And so there's this boat that comes along called Shayla's Dance, that's, Kali, that's dancing Kali, the boat. 
And this is the boat that rescues Davos from the spears of the Merlin King and gives him his new life. Okay. And then to tie that to, like I said, Miriam Asdor and the tent of dancing shadows. If you remember, it was, we saw the shadow of a wolf man and a, like a person made of fire dancing inside the tent. And that's the same thing. Uh, Danny is feeding her baby to the darkness in that scene. So she's giving her baby to the void. Uh, and then out of that magical ceremony comes the birth of the dragons. So we can see that sort of Kali role that's being played there. Uh-huh. And that is that is the deeper layer of the shadows dancing. But it's very much complementary to the whole idea of resurrection, Jon Snow's resurrection, the dragons being reborn, the others and the shadow babies. And all those things are being touched on here. I want to say one thing about, yeah. about, about Crescent. Is that Crescent, Crescent is trying to fight the shadow. He's not listening. He's trying to, like, um, Patchface is telling him the shadows are coming to stay, and he's not listening. He's still trying to fight it. He's still trying to fight Melisandre. But the thing is, a shadow is not necessarily, like, negative. Like, sh- shadows, like Melisandre, like she says, they're creatures of the light. It's necessary. That ethereal plane, that shadow realm exists within everything, with ev- it, and with that, within everyone. Everyone has a shadow self, that, like that dark part of yourself that you have to live with and work with not just resist the change and resist it like crescent did that was his mm. mistake that's what i think oh that's cool that's that's another see that's a very much a complimentary layer mm-hmm. that's nice nice job quinn amanda you have anything to add to that let me unmute myself so um i definitely thought of mary monster's tent because um, when we get that quote from Patchface, that's like right at the beginning of A Clash of Kings. And the shadows dancing you know, occurred right at the end of A Game of Thrones. And so it seems as though Patchface may have actually kind of seen what was going on. Um, it, you know, that's a possibility. It spoke of time and time again with um, all the shadows dancing and seeing um, all these different animals and, and everything. And it's a very significant event. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of possibilities. It could be like the white walkers that he's seeing. It could be a number of things, but the first thing that came to my mind obviously was going to be Mary monsters tent because just of the proximity of the two, we get the dancing shadows in the tent. And then in the next book, right at the beginning, we get patch face and he's saying, Hey, the shadows come to dance. And I think that it might be the author just trying to tell us like, Hey, this guy knows what's going on. So. Yeah, very much true. It's, it's again, it's complimentary of just the entire idea of like Ragnarok, the long night, the second war for the dawn is starting. The shadows have come down. They're here to stay. The dragons are here. The others are here. Resurrected people are here. And yeah, so Quinn, to build on what you're talking about, the psychological angle of reconciling yourself to your shadow, I was definitely thinking of the, of a, you know, a tool song where he's talking about my shadow, my shadow, change is coming through my shadow. And he's very much talking about that exact concept of reconciling yourself to that, that id, that repressed self. So I just thought that was cool. Like what you're talking about is the literally the theme of that song. So Mm -hmm. it's like, it's like a Nietzschean idea, like the shadow self, like it's very, yeah, yeah, I, I like it a lot. Watch the Babadook, everybody. That's all I want to say. Staring into the <laughs> abyss type of situation. Yeah, yeah exactly. you think of the weirwood tree gazing at its own reflection in the black pond. Mm-hmm. All right, so... Oh, uh, one thing. Oh, yep. No, go ahead, Jen. 
Oh, oh, yeah. I was yeah. going to say that I kind of see it slightly different, but kind of in the same way that Quinn was saying about it. But I see it more as trying to defeat death, which is like Crescent's whole thing is kind of nihilistic and kind of like at the end of his life he's lamenting and going off into the veil of tears and things like that so the shadows for me have always represented death so it's like if he wants to defeat melisandra he's trying to defeat death in a in a way i guess i think that's beautiful yeah i totally agree with that he in, in the same way he's resisting change He's 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 trying to hold on to some to an age that's ending, and that isn't that emblematic of the Maesters in general. Yeah, they're trying yeah, to hold back the tide of magic, and they're about to fail miserably. I think that's probably the another poetic layer to the idea that it's Crescent dealing with this whole situation. So very cool. So then we go on um, right after all this. Uh, Stuff about the shadows dancing, and Davos comes in with his ties to Shayala's dance. Uh, we get the description of Stannis, the shadow making Night's King version of Azor High. Check him out. Though he was not yet five and thirty, only a fringe of thin black hair remained on his head, circling behind his ears like the shadow of a crown. His brother, the late Robert, had grown a beard in his final years. Maester Crescent had never seen it, but they said it was a wild thing, thick and fierce. As if an answer, Stannis kept his own whiskers cropped tight and short. Shout out to five o'clock. Shadows everywhere. Stannis! They lay like a blue-black shadow across his square jaw and the bony hollows of his cheeks. His eyes were open wounds beneath his heavy brows, a blue as dark as the sea by night. So this is great Night's King language here. It's Azor High who's transformed into the Night's King. He's representative of a sea that's dark, a night sea, so it's like the green sea, but turned dark. So you think of Azor High corrupting the green sea. He's got a shadow crown and shadows about his face. So, I mean, it's really heavy symbolism here. I use this quote in the Blood of the Other episode where we're talking about Stannis as a Night's King. So I just think that's a big clue that that, that description comes right after all the shadows come to dance. Yeah, it's definitely talking about shadow babies for sure. And that might be one of the first things that Martin wants us to think about because it's it's relevant to the main plot, and it leads to the sort of the deeper symbolism going on. Uh, so then after that, there's talk of Melisandre seeing Renly dead in her flames, which is, again, the seeds of the Shadow Baby assassination idea. Uh, then Cresson goes to sleep. He sees the comet even after he closes his eyes, so it's more dragon dreams kind of stuff. And this inspires him to try to bring blood and death to Melisandre. Then when Crescent goes to dinner, that's the end of the chapter, right? So it says, The doors to the great hall were set in the mouth of a stone dragon. He told the servants to leave him outside. It would be better to enter alone. He must not appear feeble. Leaning heavily on his cane, Crescent climbed the last few steps and hobbled beneath the gateway teeth. A pair of guardsmen opened the heavy red doors before him, unleashing a sudden blast of noise and light. Crescent stepped down into the dragon's maw. So we've got several equations here between doors and the dragon's mouth, and the gateway teeth is perhaps my favorite. So you can see this is a portal. You know, he's stepping into the jaws of death, uh, all that kind of stuff. And I, I think it's a, supposed to be a similarity drawn to the mouth of the weirwood, the gaping maw of the weirwood. It's, it's the same sort of portal. All that's really just leading into 
the next actual scene. Yeah. Um, so, Quinn, go ahead and read from Over the Clatter of Knife and Plate. Okay. Over the clatter of knife and plate and the low mutter of table talk, he heard Patchface singing. Dance, my lord, dance, my lord. To the accompaniment of jangling cowbells, the same dreadful song he had sung this morning. The shadows come to stay, my lord, stay, my lord, stay, my lord. The lower tables were crowded with knights, archers, and sellsword captains tearing apart loaves of black bread to soak in their fish stew. So the same sort of theme is being developed here. Then Crescent walks in, uh, only to have Patchface knock him over. Crescent made his way toward the raised platform where the Lord sat with the king. He had to step wide around Patchface, dancing, his bells ringing. The fool never saw nor heard his approach. As he hopped from one leg to the other, Patchface lurched into Crescent, knocking his cane out from under him. They went crashing down together amidst the rushes in a tangle of arms and legs, while a sudden gale of laughter went up around them. No doubt it was a comical sight. Patchface sprawled half on top of him, motley fool's face pressed close to his own. He had lost his tin helm with its antlers and bells. Under the sea, you fall up, he declared. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Giggling, the fool rolled off, bounded to his feet, and did a little dance. All right. I hope everybody's enjoying my dancing. Uh, so... <laughs> So we've got, this is just real quickly, I think this is another idea of simply resurrection from the weirwood net. When he's talking about you fall up, uh, Crescent is about to die and he's going to get weirwood stigmata when he dies too. Uh, And he's going to do the whole blood drinking, wine drinking thing. Uh, So the whole idea of under the sea, you fall up. I think that is talking about rising. Just like I was saying, you know, snow rising is John Snow rising. So continuing on with the scene, it says, Mel helps Crescent up. Uh, and when she does, it, it notes that her voice is flavored with the music of the Jade Sea. And I've already pointed that out as a strong clue about Mel as a weirwood goddess who speaks the language of the Green Sea, at least symbolically here. So go ahead, Quinn, with this quote. A man of your age must look to where he steps, Melisandre said courteously. The night is dark and full of terrors. He knew the phrase, some prayer of her faith. It makes no matter... I have a faith of my own. Only children fear the dark, he told her. Yet even as he said the words, he heard Patchface take up his song again. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. Now here is a riddle, Melisandre said. A clever fool and a foolish wise man. Bending, she picked up Patchface's helm from where it had fallen and set it on Crescent's head. The cowbells rang softly as the tin bucket slid down over his ears. A crown to match your chain, Lord Maester, she announced. All around them, men were laughing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good scene. And uh, so it's just, so far, it's just repeating this motif about the shadows dancing. Uh, But it's leading up to something new. And so we're working through here. And it says Stannis, he basically announces that Crescent has been replaced by Pylos. And Crescent is crestfallen, uh, but he's still mostly fixated on assassinating Melisandre. And so he asks for a seat at the table so that he can poison her wine. And Davos offers him a seat, uh, but it's too far to slip the poison in her cup. And go ahead and pick it up again, Quinn. 
Patchface was capering about as the maester made his slow way around the table to Davos Seaworth. Here we eat the fish, the fool declared happily, waving a cod about like a scepter. Under the sea, the fish eat us. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Sir Davos moved aside to make room on the bench. We all should be in Motley tonight, he said gloomily as Crescent seated himself. For this is fool's business we're about. The red woman has seen victory in her flame, so Stannis means to press his claim no matter what the numbers. Before she's done, we're all like to see what Patchface saw, I fear, the bottom of the sea. So that's a nice clue about the under the sea being the realm of death. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's stop and talk about that. So here we eat the fish. Under the sea, the fish eat us. That always reminds me of uh, the 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 maester that said um, I forget what her name uh, uh, Rhaenyra's uh, marriage to the Valarian dude, where she was like, he's like, who cares if he's gay? Uh, Put fish. I I don't like fish, but if you put it in front of me, I'm going to eat it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Totally. That's one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Ooh, Sanry, let's do a quick check-in. Go ahead and comment, Quinn, while we look at... Uh, I was going to okay. say, yeah, the fish eat us. It just shows you that it's uh, another reference to death. And also, I like how uh, like George keeps pointing out that Crescent is also a fool. Patchface is not the only fool present. Like, like, like Crescent is behaving just as foolish. Well, more foolishly. Patchface is the wise man here. In fact, when Melisandre said a wise man and a fool, she could have had the roles reversed. She could have been like Patchface is the wise man and Crescent is the fool. Because honestly, Patchface is speaking all truth. He's trying <laughs> to warn the man. He even knocked him out of the way. Like, don't go over there. He tried. But Crescent keeps pressing forward, trying to do this stupid, foolish thing that he should not be doing, resisting the shadows. Let the shadows dance. Yeah, saying. Lady Laura Dane is piping in to say that she thinks Patchface knew what Crescent was about to do. And yeah. that's kind of what you're implying there, Quinn. Yeah, I never thought about that, but that seems seems true. And the usage of the cod as a scepter is uh, – a scepter is basically a symbol of sovereignty. And it's basically saying uh, that Patchface gets his uh, – basically his right to rule through the fish. And shout out to Codfish the Steelbender. Interesting. And it also, um, yeah, it reminds me of also the leg of lamb scepter that Rob has uh, in that other vision. Um, but, but yeah, totally the, uh, so here we eat the fish. So it just shows that when, when men go under the sea, they die. And, and uh, Davos is emphasizing that by saying, you know, we're all like to see what Patchface saw, the bottom of the sea, meaning we're going to die. Mm-hmm. And of course, Davos has a very Patchface-like drowning and resurrection uh, event, which is when he washes up on the spears of the Merlin King and then gets rescued by Shaila's dance. What, what's funny about that that Davos thing, though, just to say this real quick, is that if that had been like uh, the damp hair, for instance, it would have been the drowned god that saved him. But since it was Davos, it was uh, it was the mother, right? So it, w- it was... It's, it's all interpreted through the lens of what he already believes. So it's very interesting. The Lady of the Waves is mm-hmm. the mother. Yeah, totally. my next yeah. video is actually going to be on that subject. <laughs> cool. Well, shout out to uh, the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. And yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, the, the waves speak to Davos in the voice of the mother. And it sounds like uh, the whispering inside of a shell even. So it's like the seashell horns being blown. 
All right, so Crescent gives Stannis advice about making allies with the Starks or the Aarons, uh, but Stannis ain't having it. He's the man. He doesn't need any help. He has an ally, Lady Selyse said. Relor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow. Gods make uncertain allies at best, the old man insisted, and that one has no power here. You think not? The ruby at Melisandre's throat caught the light as she turned her head, and for an instant it seemed to glow, bright as the comet. If you will speak such folly, maester, you ought to wear your crown again. Yes, Lady Selyse agreed. Patch's helm, it suits you well, old man. Put it on again, I command you. Under the sea, no one wears hats, Patchface said. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Lord Stannis's eyes were shadowed beneath his heavy brow, his mouth tight as his jaw worked silently. He always ground his teeth when he was angry. Fool, he growled at last. My lady wife commands, give Crescent your helm. Patchface danced closer, his cowbells ringing. Clang-a-lang, ding-dong, clink, 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 clink. The maester... <laughs> sorry, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> the maester sat silent while the fool set the antlered bucket on his brow. Crescent bowed his head beneath the weight. His bells clanged. Perhaps he ought to sing his counsel henceforth, Lady Selyse said. You've gone too far, woman, Lord Stannis said. He is an old man, and he served me well. So just I'll open it up to comments, but just real quickly, I want to note that Patchface's helm is called his antlered hat by John in A Dance with Dragons. Um, so the whole idea of hat wearing um, and is also obviously equated with crowns here too, um, because it says you ought to wear your crown again, uh, Maester, when she's talking about the, the actual helm. So that's where I think this is starting to go is hats and crowns and stuff like that. But guys, what do you think? I think that, that Patchface is definitely trying to help Crescent out because when they're like, put on this thing, Patchface is all like, oh, to the sea, no one wears hats. He's like, he's like, you don't have to wear that. That's so funny. I agree because, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we get the whole crowning somebody putting on a king's hat is killing them, basically. Um, yeah. To crown him yeah. is to kill him. It's just more to the the humiliation of Crescent and demonstrating that he is the fool. It can't be more clear in this scene that the real fool here is Crescent. Um, Very interesting. I also think it's a commentary on the hive mind uh, because under the sea is the weirwood net. And since the weirwood net is like a collective, nobody's really the king. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you do have a king of the weirwood net, then that's a really bad thing. The Merlin king. Mm. I was also thinking that uh, no one wears hats is like lack of identity in a sense um, because they're shadows under the sea or in the, uh, in the weirwood net. Um, They're all shadows and shadows don't typically have an identity unless they're specifically tied to a human being to go back to your point, Quinn. That's right. The others are faceless. Um, and Painkiller, didn't you have some research about the faceless men and the idea of wearing um, faces as like hoods? Or was that somebody else in the chat? I think, that, I think that was somebody else in the chat. Okay, so the idea is that the faceless men wear faces, but they're really like hats because they're, they're hoods. They're skin hoods. 
And so under the sea, no one wears hats. It's kind of like, again, the whole faceless concept, the idea they don't have an individual identity. They don't wear crowns. They don't wear hats. They're faceless. Uh, but of course, they can wear faces when they come out of the weirwood nets. That's when they wear crowns, I guess. So, would that Amanda? Um, would that oh, go also ahead. go back? Would that go back to what um, I think it was? Uh, was it Melanie or one of the? Um, uh, she was talking about how the scarification of um, the trees is going back to Leviticus and giving. Uh, marks for the dead so carving faces into a werewolf would be giving a face or a hat to to the dead yes yes it would be that's the very much the same concept yeah so i was thinking um i kind of just popped into my head right now but um when it says under the sea no one wears hats the night's watch actually has a portion in their oath that says i shall wear no crowns I'm I'm wondering if this might actually be a reference to um the the night's watch because we have um an order that wear no crowns that um shall win no glory um hold no land no titles and so um it might actually just be a reference to the the night's watch um well, and that makes particularly it makes particular sense if the green zombies theory is true, and the origins of the Night's Watch oath is in actual resurrected people, and the King of Winter with uh, snow melting in his hair. How's that painkiller? The King of Winter, you know, we see we see uh, Rob with two times uh, with snow melting in his hair, but he's very much a King of Winter or King of North, and he's not technically wearing the crown of the North. So that would be uh, being a king without being having like a hat on and then um not his hat is melting exactly it would be kind of like uh the the night's watch having their sacred duty type of situation he's a king but yet he's still um he has no crown to wear and he doesn't like he just does his duty cool so i definitely think that's where this quote is going in general is a commentary on crowns and identity and stuff like that so we could do a whole between two weirwoods panel on that subject, but this is actually the end of the chapter, and this it ends with um, this last quote, uh, which I'll read real quick. It says, "As he sank to his knees, still he shook his head, denying her, denying her power, denying her magic, denying her god." And the cowbells pealed in his antlers, singing "Fool, fool, fool!" While the red woman looked down on him in pity, the candle flames dancing in her red eyes. So shouldn't have resisted the shadows. <clears throat> Exactly. So the next chapter, uh, next Crescent appearance, or next Patchface appearance, is at the Forging of Lightbringer ceremony. Um, and Quinn, actually, I'm not going to have you read this entire quote. It's a little bit long. Uh, but you guys are familiar with it. It says, pale flames looked at the gray sky. Dark smoke rose, twisting and curling. Uh, that's the main line. So we've got the rising smoke from the Lightbringer pyre motif, the rising ash. And it says, when the wind pushed it toward them, the men blinked and wept and rubbed their eyes. A taste of things to come, thought Davos. Many and more would burn before this war was done. And Melisandre is robed in scarlet and satin. She gives the whole prophecy. In this dread hour, our warriors shall draw forth 
from the fire a burning sword, yada, yada, yada. Zora High, come forth and take your sword. And pick it up, Quinn, with Stannis Baratheon strode forward. Stannis Baratheon strode forward like a soldier marching into battle. His squires stepped up to attend him. Davos watched as his son, Devon, pulled a long padded glove over the king's right hand. The boy wore a cream-colored doublet with a fiery heart sewn onto the breast. Brian Faring was similarly garbed as he tied a stiff leather cape around his grace's neck. Behind Davos heard a faint clink and clatter of bells. Under the sea, smoke rises and bubbles. Flames burn green and black and blue. Patchface sang somewhere. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. The king plunged into the fire with his teeth clenched, holding the leather cloak before him to keep off the flames. He went straight to the mother, grasped the sword with his gloved hand and wrenched it free of the burning wood with a single hard jerk. Then he was retreating. The sword held high, jade green flames swirling around cherry red steel. Guards rushed to beat out the cinders that clung to the king's clothing. So you can see why I attached that last paragraph. We literally see green flames. We just talked about under the sea, the flames are green and blue and black. And a paragraph later, we see Stannis pull the sword out and it's got green flames. And of course, you know, the whole, this, this is a big light bringer transformation scene right here. So we can imagine Stannis being sort of quasi resurrected or transformed here and drawing light bringer out and it's got green flames, but, uh, uh, Painkiller, I know you got some more to say about these flame colors, so why don't you go ahead? So I remember talking, and I think it was ravenous or rusted or unchained, and somebody uh, had noted that the flames burning green, blue, and black are a match for Melisandre's uh, powders. And basically she was saying that they all turn these different colors and the black smoke rises up and it kills people. So I couldn't remember who it was exactly. So I'm thinking that that's what this is related to, kind of like a uh, like faux magic, in a sense. Well, I, I would I think of Melisandre as a weirwood goddess figure, and so her magic powders are it's the fire that's under the sea. That's what she should have. Um, and so let's think about those three colors. So green is the color of wildfire which is basically a symbol of weirwood fire, as I've talked about in the weirwood compendium episodes. Uh, Blue fire is an obvious tie to the others who have burning blue star eyes. And black fire makes us think of Drogon, who spits black fire, the, the sword black fire of House Targaryen, and the concept of shadow fire. And so I think that what we're, what, what it's basically telling us is the things that come out of the weirwood net, the others with their blue fire, Reborn Azor High, who's symbolized by black fire. And of course, the green fire is the very idea of the dragon entering the weirwood net. So the dragon enters the weirwood net, and then the others and the reborn black brothers and Azor High people come out of the weirwood net. That's, that's how I look at it. Um, Amanda, are these your notes here about Lightbringer and the mother? Yeah, so right after we get the quote for... Um, for the flames burning green and blue and black. Um, right afterward, we get Stannis pulling the Lightbringer from the mother. 
And so it's it's very um, very evocative of the forging, the original forging of Lightbringer when when it's forged into the heart of Nissa Nissa, because um, prior to the, the patch face quote the sword is actually placed into the heart of the mother. So we get the flames are burning green and blue and black. And then the next thing we see, um, uh, Stannis, our Azura High archetype, is actually pulling Lightbringer from the heart of the mother. So it's pretty. It's a pretty um, deep little uh, thing going on right there. Yeah, and, and intrinsically tied to all the Lightbringer forging stuff, for sure. So... Uh, then we go on to Storm of Swords, Davos 1, where Davos returns to Dragonstone after the Battle of the Blackwater and uh, is trying to kill Melisandre. And he is... Uh, so So it starts with a line about Shayla's dance, saving Davos. Uh, and Davos even compares himself to Patchface, uh, his drowning. He's like, oh, I drowned like Patchface. Uh, and he was saved by the dancing shadow, Shayla's dance. And then it says, they escorted him not to the stone drum as he had expected, but under the arch of the dragon's tail, which is a name for the comet. Uh, so he's, again, crossing a threshold here. Uh, and down to Aegon's garden, which is a cool little thing I never noticed until I read this quote again just recently. So this is the dragon's garden. Uh, very much the idea of a weirwood net uh, that is inhabited by a dragon. And then, Quinn, go ahead and pick up the quote here. Why have they brought me here? Davos wondered. Then he heard a faint ringing of bells and a child's giggle, and suddenly the full patch face popped from the bushes, shambling along as fast as he could go with the Princess Shireen hot on his heels. You come back now, she was shouting at him. Patches, you come back. When the fool saw Davos, he jerked to a sudden halt. The bells on his antlered tin helmet going tingling, tingling, hopping from one foot to the other, he sang. Fool's blood, king's blood, blood on the maiden's thigh, but chains for the guests and chains for the bridegroom. Aye, aye, aye. Shireen almost caught him then, but at the last instant he hopped over a patch of bracken and vanished among the trees. The princess was right behind him. The sight of them made Davos smile. Thoughts. Oh, well, Red Wedding. I mean... Obviously, right. I have lots of thoughts. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so for me, the biggest thing that comes out to me is the chains for the bridegroom. Bridegroom, the word, is only ever used six times in the text. And Mm. it's um, epithets for two people. Uh, One is a gardener king, uh, and the other one is a Stark, surprisingly. His name is... um, Edarian, which is kind of like Ed and Arion put together. Um, and he's called the Bridegroom, and it's one of the statues that Bran sees. Edgeon, 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 go ahead. Yeah, Edgeon, exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, um, when I was looking at it, I was like, there's no explanation why he's called the Bridegroom, obviously. But with Garland, the second, the Bridegroom, um, it basically goes into the fact that he married Lyman Hightower, who was a sea lion, a skin changer type of stuff. And then um, Lyman married Gardner's daughter as well. So, you know, you're getting this exchange of like green seers um, and green man situation going on, especially with the sea um, motifs and stuff like that. So I thought I was like, well, Arion Stark is 
named the bridegroom. So I was thinking, you know, the Starks are also known for conquering their foes and then marrying their daughters. And I was like, well, you know, maybe that's the Stark who married into House Reed, given the green seer and um, the watery uh, symbolism. Or at least symbolic of that idea of the same mm-hmm. concept at the yeah. very least. And I definitely, there's a lot of like um, drowned bridegrooms. Um, Peter. Um, yeah, Littlefinger is the perfect example. But then there's also, you know, with the 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 drown there's also the death which jamie actually notes that tywin becomes the bridegroom of death uh because he's grinning the way he's smiling mm. and then also uh Tyrion notes himself as the bridegroom um and and things like that so and obviously he's another drowned figure as well so i was thinking that this bridegroom situation is another way of talking about uh bran being um, being wedded to the trees and any other other green seers, right? Yeah, so they're they're getting chained also in the simple sense that the weirwood roots go around them and chain up their body, and it's also the the sort of ironic concept of being chained in order to be freed. Their bodies are chained down in the roots, but their spirits soar through the trees into the sky, and they can fly through time and space. So. And uh, Rob, even though Catelyn is the main weirwood stigmata at the Red Wedding, uh, Rob does get it too. And he also gets feathered with all the arrows, which makes him like a tree with lots of wooden branches. And I've talked about that before. So there's definitely going into the weirwood nut symbolism happening. And other than that, it's obviously this is the uh, beginning of a storm of swords. And George wants to begin foreshadowing the Red Wedding really heavily. And so it seems that he's got this idea that Patchface somehow has picked up a scene of the Red Wedding, and we'll see the Ghost of High Heart. We'll see it. The Undying. We'll see it when they show it to Danny. So, Patchface has peered into the ethereal realm, into the shadow world. So I feel like he just gets occasional glimpses, and he interprets it through like rhymes and songs. So then, later in A Storm of Swords, the chapter with the Leech burning, there's a comparison made between fools and raising dragons, uh, as Patches is mentioned before the Leech burning, one of which is for Rob. And it says, Stannis ground his teeth. I'll hear no more of this. The dragons are done. The Targaryens tried to bring them back half a dozen times and made fools of themselves or corpses. Patchface is the only fool we need on this godforsaken rock. You have your leeches. Do your work. So he's saying, I'm not going to turn into a fool by trying to raise dragons. And you can also turn into a corpse that way. And of course, Patchface is a corpse and a fool. So that's pretty good. And then again, I remind you that uh, Jingle Bell's real name is Aegon. So we've got an Aegon fool already. Uh, go ahead and pick this one up, uh, Quinn. The boy was about to say something more when they heard steps. Davos turned. Sir Axel Florent was coming down the garden path with a dozen guards and quilted jerkins. On their breasts they wore the fiery heart of the Lord of Light. Queensmen, Davos thought. A cough came on him suddenly. Sir Axel was short and muscular with a barrel chest, thick arms, bandy legs, and hair growing from his ears. The queen's uncle, he had served as Castellan of Dragonstone for a decade. So the reason I included that quote was that Sir Axel Florent is coming uh, with Last Hero Math and Queen's Men. And we've, we're going to talk about this more in the future, but the, uh, the, Long Night's, the Long Night's Watch Green Zombies are Queen's Men, 
in the sense that they serve the weirwood goddess. And so I uh, just thought that was interesting that we see this last hero math coming for Davos, uh, but that's really it. So next chapter is A Storm of Swords. Davos is learning to read at Sea Dragon Tower. And it says that every day Davos ascends these spiral stairs of Sea Dragon Tower, cough, cough, DNA symbol, uh, to learn to read, which makes him feel, quote, as big a fool as Patchface. Go ahead, Quinn. At the top of the steps, Davos heard a soft jingle of bells that could only herald Patchface. The princess's fool was waiting outside the maester's door for her like a faithful hound. Doe soft and slump-shouldered, his broad face tattooed in a motley pattern of red and green squitters. Patchface wore a helm made of a rack of deer antlers strapped to a tin bucket. A dozen bells hung from the tins and rang when he moved which meant constantly, since the fool seldom stood still. He jingled and jangled his way everywhere he went. Small wonder that Pylos had exiled him from Shireen's lessons. Under the sea, the old fish eat the young fish. (laughs) The fool muttered at Davos. He bobbed his head, and his bells clanged and chimed and sang. I know, I know, oh, 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 oh. Up here, the young fish teach the old fish, said Davos, who never felt so ancient as when he sat down to try and read. It might have been difficult if Agent Mester Crayson had been the one teaching him, but Pylos was young enough to be his son. So I just love that because Davos actually converses with Patchface in Patchface's language. He's like, well, up here, the old fish teach the young fish. So I just I thought that was hysterically funny. What do you guys think? Yeah. Joe, you haven't talked in a minute. What do you think? Um, I've been thinking about the, the young fish. <laughs> I've been thinking about the fish uh, quite a bit as we've been talking. Um, in one way, the, the well, in this one in particular, the old fish eat the young fish. That reminds you of the undying yes. trying to eat Danny, reminds you of the others taking Craster's kids in order to uh, fund their own life, which seems to be a primary part of the old magic in this world. And there's also ding, the ding, line, ding, ding. the line about the uh, under the sea, the fish eat us, and that's sort of a. We're told that the green seers and these magical people, while they are immense in their psychic powers and their mental powers, usually they're very frail. But if you go into their world, if you go into the world of green sight, they're the actually the powerful ones, and it seems like. The, the fish and the way he's talking about them every single time he's talking about extremely powerful green seers doing something terrible to normal people. Yeah, that's the perfect answer, Joe. And additionally, you can think about the weirwood net as the old fish and the incoming green seer like Bran as the young fish. Right. And when the green seer hooks up to the weirwood net, their body is slowly consumed by the trees, even as they sort of go into the trees. So that's the old fish eating the young fish. And I've also pointed out that the rat cook myth is basically a symbolism for that, where the, the parent rat, the rat cook, turns into a white rat with red eyes, so he looks like the weirwood, and he's condemned to eat his children. Mm-hmm. And so you think of like an OG green seer in a tree and his descendants hooking up to the tree, and he's consuming them. And so I think that's part of it, too. And it, it very much dovetails into what you are saying. So good answer. 
Amanda it's like a or painkiller? Yeah, it's like a fantastic way of of uh, the misinterpretation of um, survival of the fittest type of situation. Uh, yes, that's also true. Very much so. Yeah, like there's no mercy. And when he says, when he says the old fish eat the young fish, what he's really saying is the big fish eat the small fish. So it's really a game of the powerful versus the weak. Um, just throwing In that out the game there. of fish, you're either big or you get eaten. Mm-hmm. And also it makes you think of that whole big fish, little pond, little fish, big pond kind of metaphor. Mm-hmm. And it alludes well. to cannibalism as well. And so, I yeah, love I, the, now I was just going right. to say, I love what Joe said about the, um, the house of the undying. Yeah, that's the main answer. That's the primary answer. That's a very important theme. Basically, it's like the, the sorcerer who wants to escape death himself. It doesn't come free. He's got to become parasitic then. He's got to feed off of other people's life force. And that's... And it, right, exactly. And it, it works from a magical sense. Danny's sacrificing her baby to wake dragons and, and become more powerful. It also works in the sense of like Tywin Lannister, who essentially sacrifices his children to his political ambitions in order to get more powerful. So it's, it's an important metaphor that's and theme that's running through the story on, on many levels. So there's another uh, good example in Valyria, who were essentially almost like the elder civilization after the fall of the great empire, the dawn. And they spend all their time preying on the younger ones, the weaker ones and absorbing them into their fires, really just burning um, people and civilizations to the ground to fund their own. It's, it's just a practical example of what's going probably going on in the world of magic and green sight. Yeah. And it's all in an effort to achieve immortality, whether it's legacy, um, whether it's honor, whether it's, um, you know, uh, the fertility aspect of the young um, being sacrificed is stealing nature's version of immortality, which is procreation. Very true. And you can see how all these different layers are very complementary and sort of present the same theme translated on different levels. You know, the magical level, the real level, the, the sort of the micro and the macro. So that's a good one. Under the sea, the old fish eat the young fish. And again, I just love how Davos turns and he's like, yeah, well, up here, the young fish teach the old fish. Uh, so <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool. How, let's see those color portraits there, Sanri. I've got the okay. screen locked on you for a couple of minutes here. So why don't you go ahead okay. and show us? Oh, that's looking good. So good. Yeah. I'll finish with backgrounds like I did for Joey McWizards over there. <laughs> but yeah, those are amazing. Oh, Don't forget you. to draw yourself as me in there. Come on now. I, I, if I have time, you guys were more important. Well, no, I, I command thee. I command uh, thee to do it. All right. All right. The fool has commanded. And what was the other thing you're working on? Was that like a sea dragon anemone thing? Yeah, I was going to do a um, under the sea scene and kind of throw in a whole <clears> bunch of things like weirwood trees. Um, thank you, Photoshop. I am sorry for hearing that noise. Oh my God. Okay. So yeah, I was going to do a a kind of like Naga sea dragon thing and maybe a couple otters and that's looking beautiful. I like that. I like that. But do draw yourself in. Don't be so humble and self-effacing. Draw yourself in there first and then, and then do the end of the sea. I command it. All right. All right. Yes. And because you look like me, it also appeals to my ego. And so, Uh, of course, of course. (laughs) Yeah, well, 
I'll try to be honest at least. At uh, least. But, uh, yeah. So, okay. So, Dance with Dragons, Patchface goes to the wall. Go ahead, Quinn. The queen turned her frown to John. Lord Snow, what is this bestial creature doing on our side of the wall? One one is a guest of the Night's Watch, as you are. The queen did not like the answer, nor did her knights. Sir Axel grimaced in disgust. Sir Bruce gave a nervous titter. Sir Narbert said, I had been told all the giants were dead. Almost gone. Egret wept for them. In the dark, the dead are dancing. Patchface shuffled his feet in a grotesque dance step. I know, I know. Oh, oh, oh. At Eastwatch, someone had sewn him a motley cloak of beaver pelts, sheepskins, and rabbit fur. His hat sported antlers hung with bells and long brown flaps of squirrel fur that hung down over his ears. Every step he took set him to a ringing. One one gaped at him with fascination, but when the giant reached for him, the fool hopped, hopped back away, jingling. Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> I love that dude. <laughs> that brought one one lurching to his feet. The queen grabbed hold of Princess Shireen and pulled her back. Her knights reached for their swords, and Patchface reeled away in alarm, lost his footing, and plopped down on his arse in a snowdrift. One one began to laugh. A giant's laughter could put to shame a dragon's roar. Patchface covered his ears. Princess Shireen pressed her face into her mother's furs, and the boldest of the queen's knights moved forward, steel in hand. John raised an arm to block his path. You do not want to anger him. Sheathe your steel, sir. Leathers, take one one back to Hardens. So there's this is really just an, a continuation of the shadows coming to dance, but it's really funny. And so I wanted to have you read it. I forgot about this scene till I was reading all of your, all the patch face scenes. Uh-huh. Totally forgot it. The giant tries to grab him. He's like, Oh no. Oh no. It's like, Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> oh, that is funny. The, but it's a little bit different here though. In the dark, the dead are mm-hmm. dancing. It, leaves more it leans more towards the whites being like murmurs puppets situation yeah that's oh that's a good point yep i can see that so all right so in a dance with dragons the Karstark wedding um this is oh yeah this is a great one so go ahead with john bowed okay john bowed again as you wish i shall join you shortly sir melgorn offered his arm and queen Celise took it stiffly her other hand settled onto her daughter's shoulder. The royal ducklings fell in behind them as they made their way across the yard, marching to the music of the bells on the fool's hat. Under the sea, the mermen feast on starfish soup, and all the serving men are crabs. Patchface proclaimed as they went. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Melisandre's face darkened. That creature is dangerous. Many times I have glimpsed him in my flames. Sometimes there are skulls about him, and his lips are red with blood. A wonder you haven't had the poor man burned. All it would take was a word in the queen's ear, and Patchface would feed her fires. You see fools in your fire, but no hint of Stannis? When I search for him, all I see is snow. And what of Mance? Is he lost as well? What do your fires show? The same, I fear. Only snow. Snow. It was snowing heavily 
to the south, John knew. Only two days' ride from here, the King's Road was said to be impassable. Melisandre knows that too. And to the east, a savage storm was raging the Bay of Seals. At last report, the ragtag fleet they had assembled to rescue the free folk from Hardholm, still huddled at Eastwatch by the sea, confined to port by the rough seas. You are seeing cinders dancing in the updraft. I am seeing skulls and you. I see your face every time I look into the flames. The danger that I warned you of grows very close now. So there's kind of two things going on. It starts with under the sea, the serving men are crabs, the starfish soup thing. But then it transitions into more of that rising snow stuff. And that's so it's kind of a two-part thing. So real quickly, let me address the second part, and then I'll turn it back to you guys for the, the, the really wacky part. So when she looks into her fire and sees snow... That's the same idea as when she looks into her fires and the rising ash turns into falling snow and she sees the fist of the first men. Uh, It's the same idea from fire to ice. There's a portal thing happening. And so here she's looking into her fire and seeing snow. John's like, no, that's just the updraft of the cinders, which is like the rising ash. And she's like, no, it's snow. And I see you in there, John Snow. And then later this lowercase snow changes to a capital S snow and we know that she also sees john's face as uh, a wolf and then a man and then or a man and a wolf and then a man again so it's the idea that under the sea inside the death realm that melisandre can peer into through her fires we see rising snow um but let's go back to the wacky part now so under the sea the mermen feast on starfish soup and all the serving men are crabs what do you guys think i think it literally means say fish no i'm kidding no. <laughs> Amanda? So, um, George is doing a lot with crabs. Um, I think that the crabs may actually be um, George alluding to a certain faction of people during the long night. And so it said the um, crab king and the uh, old, old man of the river fought. Uh, um, however, to put down the long night, uh, the two had to come together to sing a song to bring back the, you know, to bring back the dawn. And then we see Moon having to um, do the same thing where he's coming together with somebody that he previously fought with in order to bring the Night King down. Um, when we look at Fools, um, he's actually fighting uh, Shagwell. He's coming down from a weirwood to fight Dick Crap. And when you Uh, look at Dick Crab, um, everybody's wondering why the name Dick Crab. And obviously it's a really great, it's funny. And it's just a really great thing that George put in there. But there's also an allusion to to the dollar a stroke going on there with those corn king type people uh, like Adonis, Tammuz, Addis, who, um, you know, and the Fisher King who take wounds to the, to the penis, to, um, to their genitals. It's a fertility thing. So he's coming down from the weirwood and he's uh, with a morning star in hand. So we've got this Azora high with this morning star beating down this dick crab. And um, so we're getting, we're giving um, a lot of really great symbolism and illusion there. Um, And so if you just kind of look at what George is doing with the crabs, um, Clarence Crab, for example, is another really great one. He fought the King of Duskendale, the King of Duskendale, his um, sigil, and his wife, uh, Clarence Crab, his wife, would kiss people and bring them back to life. 
And one of the people that he fought was um, the King of Duskendale. And if you look at the sigil for the King of Duskendale, it's basically Motley. So um, Mm. we get some really, really great allusions to um, this uh, crab um, kind of faction going on during the long night. It's just an allusion to, you know, what's actually going on. So nice. he was, this, these crap people were probably fighting the Azor High type people. And, and I've kind of talked about some of these factions before in some of my videos. So, Yeah, and those white spider crabs are uh, packed in barrels of ice water, and st- barrels of ice. So definitely yeah. makes you think about others and stuff. That's pretty cool. Someone points out that uh, starfish are notorious cannibals uh, and they can regrow their arms and stuff. So they kind of make a good symbol of a weirwood tree or uh you know since they eat eat people and the green sea or in the trees were to consume each other and of course the idea of a starfish soup uh the starfish is gives you the idea of a star that becomes a fish that's the whole sea dragon falling star image and uh the gray king used a table in the state uh, shape of a starfish same idea and then the idea of that becoming soup means this is just fire of the gods. It's the star that falls to heaven or falls from heaven, goes into the weirwood net, and it becomes the fire of the gods that man can eat. Uh, just like the weirwood paste or the gray king obtaining the fire of the gods through the burning tree. It's all the same same idea in different metaphors. So and, the, re- and the sister stew from, uh, from uh, the three sisters as well. That yeah, who's who's hungry? <laughs> I am not hungry because I'm not hungry. definitely allergic to <laughs> to most things under the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I don't no. I don't eat seafood either. Painkiller Jane, ha, solidarity. <laughs> yeah, I don't eat fish either. You guys know why? 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 Because it tastes like fish. <laughs> uh, I love fish. Yeah, fish I don't know what you guys are weird about. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I love fish. I'm fuck Give off. Give me some raw salmon. I'll just bite into it. And and the the line of demarcation sears through the the group. That's okay. That's okay. That's all right. We'll go get, go get sushi. You guys can go. Yeah. Do okay, whatever it is you funny, do. Yeah. A funny thing. The sisters stew um, reminded me of a dish that we have where my mother comes from. She comes from a Caribbean island, and it's called uh, coconut dinner. And it's salted meat and like root vegetables, and then a whole bunch of shellfish and fish all thrown together with coconut milk and it's like pure white and it's (laughs) i'll eat it i don't know i like Uh, coconut it's it's good it's good it's not sweet it's not sweet like how coconut milk is sometimes but it's it's kind of spicy in a sense um it's actually really good but for me it's just i i I just can't eat it because you know the the shellfish will just kill me (laughs) I was hoping it was coconut crabs, the giant ones. Uh-huh. I'm just kind of disappointed now. Show, show, <laughs> us, show us pretty LML here for a second. This is great. It's well, beautiful. It's you beautiful as... LML. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you, you said once you only cosplay gender-fluid Targaryens, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody was asking for a Leanna or a Shar or something. I was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Yeah. Only gender fluid Targaryens. But yeah, Only that's good. I like how you still captured the 
you, you got the layer of femininity hidden under all the elementalness there. That's great. Oh, so good. Well, I, I can't go <clears throat> on camera without eye makeup on, or I feel like I look like a crazy raccoon person. So. <laughs> I'll do whatever you got to do. That is the prettiest LML, as Melanie Lot 7 <laughs> says. Nice. I'll leave it on you for a second as we talk. So, uh, just as a coda to all that about in the darkness, the dead are dancing and the dancing shadows. Um, at the wedding feast that they go to right after this conversation, there is lots of dancing, including the famous line that I've quoted before, Queen Solis, uh, out onto the dance, or somebody led Queen Solis out onto the dance floor to dance. Uh, onto the floor to dance. Others followed. The Queen's Knights first partnered with her ladies. And then it's, so that that was the other one where, um, I was talking about the others dancing as, and of course, Waymar Royce famously says, dance with me then, so... There's a lot of others dancing going on, and that's just a compliment to them being shadows. So it's easy to peg the others as the dancing shadows. Just a code of that. And that's also the one where Owen the Oaf uh, danced with Patchface. And that's not really any symbolic import, but it's pretty funny. And I quoted it in the Zodiac episode. So, All right, Quinn, uh, we are almost there to our second to last Patchface quote. Uh, this is in A Dance with Dragons. Pick it up with They Found Her Grace Sewing. They found her grace sewing by the fire, whilst her fool danced about to music only he could hear, the cowbells on his antlers clanging. The crow, the crow! Patchface cried when he saw John. Under the sea, the crows are white as snow. I know, I know. Oh, oh, oh. Princess Shireen was curled up in a window seat, her hood drawn up to hide the worst of the grayscale that had disfigured her face. Folks, go ahead. Joey, tear into it. What do you think? Oh, um, I've got a another long-term thought. I've been sort of thinking about this whole time. I was thinking about the short story, A Song for Leah. And a large part of that story is that as the humans get the Grishka on them, which is kind of like a weirwood symbiote kind of thing, they get this bloody red veil on their head and they go around ringing bells all the time. And the psychics look into their heads and they see them that every time these bells are rung, it's like cosmic music to them, something Lovecraftian. And the more they ring them, the the closer they feel. It makes their emotions fall away. They become one with the greater consciousness thing. So uh, all throughout these quotes, particularly ones with Davos, when, they're, when they hear like Patchface's bells coming down it's almost like they're being led into this other dimension kind of thing into the um into the unconsciousness to the to the to the weirwood world like slowly and that's why he's the one dancing and he's seeing things that no one else can he's trying to bring them into his own world very interesting um i took i took the under the sea the crows are white as snow as kind of like it's just like the reversal deal. It's like crows are usually black here. So in that kind of shadow world, it's like the flip side of it. They're white. Yeah, it's a good clue that under the sea is like inverted, right? It's like crows are always black. Under the sea, they're white. So that gives you a clue that everything is like opposite somehow. My favorite uh, and, quote is coming up though. And of course, we know that the crows, you know, the main crows in the story are the Night's Watch crows. The Black Brothers, uh, so White Crows, makes us think of the others, who are very much like an inverted parallel of the Black Brothers. And essentially, 
That is what I think this quote is getting to. It's cluing us into the fact that there is some ancient connection between the others and the Black Brothers. And they're almost like mirror images of each other. They're both watchers. They both creep through the woods. Uh, Like you might remember the scene where John and everyone is sneaking up on the Weirwood Grove of Nine where Woon Woon and the surviving uh, starving wild things are gathered there. And the other, uh, the Black Brothers surround the Grove of Nine and then it says, it describes them as shadows slipping through the trees. And it's just like the prologue, where the White Walkers are the pale, the emerge from the dark of the wood, white shadows slipping through the trees. So you can see it's very similar uh, language. And I'm going to go into that in the future, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you guys can see how the others and brothers work as sort of inverted parallels to each other. And that's what I think this is getting at. Thoughts? Well, with the crows as white as snows, I definitely um, first thought of the White Walkers. The um, Well, first of all, the Night's King was the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and he used strange sorceries to, you know, bind the um, the Night's Watch to his will. So if, if the, and this is an if, if the Night's King was, um, you know, part of the, the, the faction of the others, then in a sense, you would kind of, consider the Night's Watch, or at least a, a portion of them, as part of that as well. And so it might actually be talking about that long night kind of scenario where the, you know, where he's referring to the White Walkers as the crow's whitest snow. So, um, or he could be referring to the, just the Night King in general, you know, the, and it, the crow, you know, the crow is white as snow. So, yeah, no, I, great I think point. possible. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of on the same page there and I'm, I also just think it's like an an inversion, just to, to show us the inversions because we have white crows in the story. Yeah, but they're not really related mm-hmm. to this at all. Like, well, and the white raven is associated with winter. So well, yeah, with winter, yeah, but not you know. with under the sea is what well, I meant. Yeah. Well, I was thinking that since Shireen is mentioned in the same context as the crows are white as snow as earlier in uh, clash of kings with the white raven uh white raven i was like it's just an impending death omen towards shireen because earlier the the white raven kept calling her lady lady and that should immediately tell us that we should be thinking about lady sansa's dire wolf that um was murdered so for me it's always like poor shireen um she's gonna die and that's just so heartbreaking that's a good point, and Shireen may very well die uh, as part of the magic that will help raise John, or at least around the same time. And that's a good point because Patchface looks at John and says, "The crow, the crow," and then says, "Under the sea, the crows are white as snow." So he's either talking about John's destiny of fighting the others, or it could be that when John is resurrected, he'll have white hair, like I've talked about, like uh, like Elric of Milnibony, and then he will be the white crow. Uh, potentially, which is very similar to like the whole good other symbolism that we talk about in the Blood of the Other series. So, like yeah, that's all fairly copacetic. Um, and then let's see here. It says right before this, there was another other's clue. So this this whole scene takes place in Salisa's chambers. Uh, this under the crow, under the sea, the crows are white as snow. But right outside the chamber, before John went in, he ran into Sir Patrick of King's Mountain, who was clad in knightly raiment of white and blue and silver, his cloak a spatter of five-pointed stars. 
So that's a pretty strong other symbolism, the blue stars. And he's serving the Knights Queen figure of Selyse. So there's a, and there's also Val hanging out, and she's an Ice Queen too. Shout out to Amanda's Val costume. So we've got a bunch of ice symbolism and things to th- make us think about the others and Ice Queens. And then we're given the line about the crows being as white as snow. So I felt like that was kind of a clue. Uh, and then at the end, uh, Quinn, pick up this quote here where it starts with Patchface. Patchface, be a good fool and take the princess to her room. The bells on his hat rang. Away, away. The fool sang. Come with me beneath the sea. Away, away. He took the little princess by one hand and drew her from the room, skipping. And uh, there you go. So real quickly, Amanda, I see you got to go to work. So let me let you uh, bid adieu to everyone and, and mention your YouTube channel real quick. Okay. Um, yeah, I do have to start getting ready for work. I work nights. Uh, my name is Amanda. I do have a YouTube channel. It's called The Disputed Lands. And I talk about a lot of stuff, a lot of ironborn stuff, if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I am at crowfood underscore SD. And thanks for having me, David. It was a lot of fun. And thank you for bringing the vow. We really appreciate that. Uh, no problem. <laughs> I, want, I want to see this at a con in the future. Maybe you will. It's really hot, though. I don't know if I could do this in te- in uh, Tennessee in July. You, I don't we'll know. Make a I sexy could. Val costume then. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know about that. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I think this is a bikini. <laughs> a Val in a bikini? I don't think so. I'll see well, you later. You can, you can strategically cut away things or have like a vest or something. But in any case. So a Val with cutouts? He usually <laughs> cut away things. <laughs> Yeah. So, anyways, thank you for bringing it, and I'll let you go. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you, Amanda. We all know where to find you. (laughs) So, away, away, come with me beneath the sea. Away, away. Um, I feel like this one really dovetails with the next one, where uh, they're talking about who's going to lead the ranting to Hard Home, and Patchface jumps up and he says, "I will lead it." We will march into the sea and out again. Under the waves, we will ride seahorses and mermaids will blow seashells to announce our coming. Oh, oh, oh. So that one's an easy one to spot at this point. Patchface is talking about leading the Night's Watch into the sea and out again. And he's not talking about getting around the wall by going, you know, by our East Watch into the water and then up around on the other side of the wall. What we're talking about is the green zombies, of course. The idea of the Horned Lord leading his crew of 12 into the Weirwood Net and back out again as resurrected people. And so that's why Patchface is like, away, away, come with me beneath the sea. He's a psychopomp figure who leads people into and out of death and the Green Seer realm. Uh, That was my take on it. What do you guys think? Yeah, but he could also be saying, come die with me. I'm yeah. going to lead you yeah. all to your deaths. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I thought that, like, he was hinting that maybe, like, because Melisandre says, like, he, I see him with, like, blood on his lips and, like, all this death. And, and then he's talking about leading everyone into the ocean. He's talking about, come come with me beneath the sea, Shireen. I mean, that doesn't sound good. You got to be honest. That sounds ominous as fuck. But scary. Uh, I don't know. See, that, that one, that one, I feel like it could get dark. I don't know. Yeah, at this point, it kind of sounds like Cthulhu's talking to him or something. It sounds <laughs> yes. like, it doesn't sound like the voices he's hearing are good anymore. And riding the seahorses for me always makes me think of 
the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that stores memories. So this for me is like him writing on a brain. So very creepy. (laughs) Well, and I'm going to get into the seahorse symbolism uh, in the next episode with all the Danny Greenseer stuff. Um, But she's riding a silver horse across the Dothraki Sea. So it's literally a silver seahorse. And House Valerion Sigil is a silver seahorse. And House Valerion, on, on a field of, of sea green. And House Valerion is a dragonlord house that has turned into a sea creature, as we talked about. So it's totally, wholly symbolic of the sea dragon idea. And so Danny rides her silver seahorse around the green Dothraki Sea. It's a perfect imitation of the Valerion Sigil. And that's because all of it is talking about dragons in the Weirwood Net becoming green seers. Um, so that's the whole silver seahorse thing, and I'm going to expand on that. And it's also tied to um, Odin's horse, um, Slepnir, Slepnir, which is a gray horse. So a silver horse is, f- functions the same way. And, of course, Slepnir is all about astral projection and that kind of shit. So, Witchy blood magic shit. Yep. Uh, so that's the seahorse. The mermaids blowing seashells to announce our coming. That is just another bells, trumpets, Nissanissa's cry. That's what all that sound is about. It announces the coming of everything. Uh, it's just similar to the bells announcing coming. And of course, on the uh, prow of the Merlin King boat, he's got a horn. And Asha talks about the mermaids blowing horns in the Drowned God's Halls. So that's a whole theme that ties in with the horns that we probably can't go into too much right here, but Painkiller, do you have something to say? Yeah, I was going to say that the mermaids will blow seashells to announce our coming, and then he goes, oh, oh, oh. It's kind of like he's imitating the three blow, uh, the three blows of a, of a horn, uh, like, uh, you know, announcing the coming of the others. Like the rangers? The yes. Oh, yes. the three blasts. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Nice. Uh, so then it goes on and talks about Garrick. King's blood has graciously agreed to give the hand of his eldest daughter to my beloved Axel to be united by the Lord of Light in holy wedlock, Queen Selyse said. His other girls should be wed at the same time. The second daughter was Sir Bruce Buckler and the youngest was Sir Malagorn of Redpool. Sirs, John inclined his head to the knights in question. May you find happiness with your betrothed. Under the sea, men marry fishes. Patchface did a little dance step, jingling his bells. They do, they do, they do. So that's the last Patchface line in the book. Under the sea, men marry fishes. What do y'all think? Redheaded mermaids. Oh, yeah. Because all of these girls are redheaded females. So I was like, oh, my God, it's like Ariel or something. (laughs) It is, yeah. Which which is also the name of the uh, the the spirit trapped in the tree in the tempest, not exactly the same, but it you can see how it unites the mermaid and the being in the tree goddess ideas pretty well. And if I remember correctly, isn't Ariel? Doesn't that mean um, the Lion of God? If I or, or if something like that? Yeah, that is what it means. Yep. Maybe it's a hint that what the small folk were saying about Patchface was true—that he gave a seed to a mermaid. Yeah. And he married a fish. Yeah, it's just a literal story. That just happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's all. It's very literal. Uh, (laughs) And of course, the green seers, 
become fish when they go under the weirwood net. And so they are men who are fish, kind of. And these are all lucky women. They're they're all luck, so they're marrying luck, these men. And Sir Malio Gorn of Redpool should automatically make us think of Rose of Red Lake. And That's what I was thinking of, yeah. Bloody Blade. Totally. Mm-hmm. I was actually thinking more of the undead, that it's like... This is kind of what it looks like with uh, when the whites get picked up or when they get returned from the dead or the green seers to the weirwood trees. Like the marriage that we, we've been told there is such thing as a magical marriage. Yeah. So if you've been drafted into the other's army, perhaps this is what he means. No, that yeah. makes sense because Bran is redheaded technically as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was just saying about the word Mary. Like that's that's a very specific word. Like a marriage is like a ritual. It's like It's like a whole thing so mm-hmm. it's like you want when you marry something it's like you're tied to it well it's supposed to be forever but people do get divorced but you get what i mean and i like the images of the three men that are marrying these women you have axel florent of you know house florent with the fox and all the um blue rose imagery and all that kind of stuff like uh abduction um and then you have bruce buckler who is the knight of bronze gate not technically his epithet but he is a knight of house buckler and their um their seat of power is called the bronze gate so he's he's kind of like a psychopomp type of situation um the way i think of knights of a gate or something um and then obviously melian on red bull yeah good stuff <clears throat> who doesn't want to marry a fish uh you can you could also think of the weirwoods as redheads with their red leaves. Right, yeah, totally. That's the whole point of the weirwood goddess, is that when you marry the tree, you're marrying the goddess, uh, who is kind of like a, the fish goddess in a way. The fish goddess. Yeah, I've always also thought that these this thing about redheaded lucky women that we see associated with not just Egret, but Sansa and Cat by association and other redheaded women, um, that lucky objects and things that are precious are sacrificed for power and being sacrificed as a woman to a god is being married to that god yeah yep and that is the whole that's the nice thing i love the wedding motif because it ties the alchemical wedding that danny does which is full of green seer symbolism to brand wedding the trees um, and the trees themselves are kind of like a dragon, like I was saying. They're, they're bloody maw that eats everyone, uh, and they appear to be burning eternally. They possess the fire of the gods. So there's, there's a lot of actual, in real-world mythology, there's a lot of dragon-tree crossover that we're going to get into that I haven't really talked about too much yet either. So, And then, of course, Bloodraven is the dragon sitting in the roots, just like the Nidhogg serpent under Yggdrasil. Uh, so there's lots of dragon tree stuff going on. And that gets right back to the beginning where it says under the sea, uh, the the birds have scales. Uh, they're talking about the dragons as the fish that are in the green sea. So all the green seers are kind of like dragons in that sense. So, all right, guys, it is 314. We've definitely had this stream running for a while. We're coming up on another 420, which this one will be um, central time. Yep. 420, right? Nope. Or is is it uh, like uh, Mountain Time 420? 
I think it's mountain time. Mountain time. Yeah. So we'll go another five minutes, just long enough to check in on Sanri's art and have everybody uh, say their channel or give their final. Actually, before we do that, yeah. Are there any final thoughts here that they want to get out before we uh, wrap this thing up? Patch face will lead to nothing but misery and death. And I don't trust him and I don't like him. (laughs) Oh, come on. Duana, I don't, you're, you're saying this, I don't look trustworthy and credible? You look you foolish. <laughs> fool. <laughs> Sorry, if the fool man, usually says everything. If Amanda was here, I would definitely... Uh, Patch I is love, sad. <laughs> I think Patchface has grayscale. I think he's a carrier, Ooh. personally, for me. That's oh how I've always gonna... seen him. And I think, I think Shireen is going to be blamed for it. Yeah. Yeah, the idea there that his face is tattooed to hide the uh, grayscale scars that like Shireen would have. He's gonna turn all the crows at the night's watch white from grayscale. That's what we'll see. We'll see. Under the sea, we'll see. Joey Mm. McWizards. Uh yeah, I guess my last thing was I guess I never really realized how much of like a dark prophet patch faces like a lot of times many of the characters who see things and see beyond sort of assume that what they're getting is like for their benefit not only is what patch face getting not for his benefit he seems totally cool with it he seems like to embrace the oncoming doom and it's a pretty terrifying little character wrapped up in these silly little songs and stuff like that and it's uh it's a very clever way of george hiding that sort of like Lovecraftian dark prophet character by making Shireen always think he's funny. It's like, well, she thinks he's funny, so maybe you shouldn't take it seriously. Whoops, he's seeing the apocalypse and psyched about it. Yeah. He's psyched for the apocalypse. He seems like it. I'm looking forward to the inevitable uh, Euron patch face meetup that we're going to get at some point. Oh, my God. Oh, he's probably like going to bow down to Euron. Hey, man, how's it going? See, I want patch face to be like, you're not a god and to just fucking fuck up Euron's ego. And yes. ruin him. I've seen the real God, and you're not. You're not in. Sorry. I don't know. I think he would. I think he might worship Euron. <laughs> Patchface, Patchface me- meeting Aaron Greyjoy. Patchface worships the true God. Yeah. Oh, that's that's true. That's what we need. We need Aaron and Patchface both locked in the hold of the silence and force-fed shade of the evening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be some shit. Uh, draw it, Sandra. Come on, you got three minutes. Uh, <laughs> I think that would just lead to Aaron like pissing on Patchface. Oh God. Oh Joe, come on, man. That's what his thing is. Aaron's <laughs> thing is. is that he can piss like fifteen. Oh yeah, it days. is. He, he, I wasn't just saying that to be rude. He can put know, out a hearth fire. Him writing, him writing the golden shower that he does is definitely puts him as a stormlord Zeus type. Yeah. Uh, archetype. Way to way to extract Golden some meaning shower. out of that. Only paint so painkiller Jane is one of the princesses of the cesspool. Her and Ravenous Reader are the uh, <laughs> the, the, the authors of the cesspool symbolism. So yeah, it, it, that's George. That is all George. <laughs> yeah, it's not I their mean, fault it that he didn't get out of middle school in his humor. Yes, but we all we all choose what areas of symbolism we desire to focus on, don't we? So yeah. Oh, Quinn, are, do we have a cute dog sighting? We do. Let's <gasps> take. Tell us about your pooch there, Quinn. This is major. I got him like a month ago from these people that weren't taking care of him at all. Share his screen. Look at oh, him. I, I am. Oh, oh, I am sharing it. No, that, that is a cute boy right oh, there. Oh, look at that baby boy. Oh, look, he's patched and piebald. 
He could Say be a hi to everybody. He's so Say cute. Hi, buddy. Oh, dude. <laughs> Oh, Mine were in here earlier. If you saw them, I don't know if you missed them or not. But yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I missed it. Yeah, yeah. My, so so my let's wolf dog. So Quinn, go ahead and tell everyone where to find you, and we'll say the goodbyes here. Ideas of Ice and Fire, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. I cover lots of different fantasy and sci-fi books. Um, I've got a Halloween live stream coming up on October 31st at 7 p.m. EST, and we're going to talk about A Song of Ice and Fire, but it's not limited to A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm also talking about one of my favorite books of all time, which is 1984 by George Orwell, and it's one of the scariest books ever written, and I love it. Got some Stephen King stuff. I've got some Lovecraft stuff. It's like a night of horror, and it's going to be... Oh, wow. I'll be there for sure. Um, uh, Joe Magician, go ahead. Uh, yeah, you can find me at my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Joe Magician. Uh, right after I finish this, I'm going to have to go work on the Three Witches thing that uh, me and Shakespeare nice. Thrones are working on. I'm nice. trying to get that out by Tuesday, maybe. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to... Hey, take your time. Do it right. Just do it right. We're all, we're all waited for it long enough and definitely looking forward to that. Well, no, we were planning on doing a, a stream Halloween. I didn't realize Kryn was doing one. Do I want to go up against another YouTuber no. again no, you at the don't. same time? You don't. You don't. Quinn's, um, Quinn will crush you. Yeah. Well, it could just be for fun. I'm sorry. Anyway, um, I'm listening for a second. No, we'll work it out. We'll work it out. We'll make an announcement. Um, I'm, that's a great subject, so you definitely got to do it justice. Yeah, what she's written so far is amazing. Uh, you can also find me on Watchers on the Wall. I'm going to the Fire and Blood event in New Jersey. I'll be covering that for them. That will be fun. And uh, me and Michael are going to do a, or Bookshelf Stud are going to do a stream at some point, probably in the next couple of weeks, where we talk about um, the what's going on at the Night Fort, particularly about Jon Snow and how he might come back as basically a serial killer for a little bit. It'll be fun. <laughs> nice i like it and there's definitely some killing john's gonna have to do uh and of course guys if you missed it um joe did a really cool video called uh killing of a ranger yep. that's about waymar and the prologue and then uh we followed that up with a live stream with me and bookshelf stud aka the crowded couch and that was just a couple <laughs> days ago you can find that on the joe magician youtube channel i recommend the video very strongly and i thought our little discussion went pretty well too so check that out and check out Joe Magician's channel. Make sure you're subscribed to that. Joe's a good man. He does live streams as well as putting out videos. Uh, Painkiller Jane, I know you don't have a YouTube channel, but we can find you at Painkiller Jane on Twitter. Is that not correct? Uh, yeah, that's actually that's uh, the, the little name that you see it. But my actual Twitter handle is Ixchel Aida. Which, uh, good so luck. Just- yeah. <laughs> I can never yeah. tag you. I know, I know. It's so hard. If you just put in Painkiller, it. it comes up. Yeah, it comes up as Painkiller Jane. Um, you'll see me there. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I might go missing a little bit because I am in college. Uh, so you'll see me there. Um, but yeah, come talk to me. I love talking about A Song of Ice and Fire. And of course, you'll continuously hear me continue to hat tip Painkiller Jane as we go. So uh, yeah, there you go. So Sanry, give us a tour of your drawings and tell us where we can find Sanry merch. All right. Um, Well, I decided to do color stuff today. So good. A really good time. Um, So as is tradition, I will be probably finishing these off and saving them out and posting them on Twitter, which is where you can find me the most, at Sanrixian. Spelled like that. Check it out. I I made a stamp for my logo. (laughs) Awesome. And oddly enough, LML, I don't know if you noticed what this is. 
but it's a dragon encircling the sun, which I made in 2010. So nice, nice. Fire of the Gods has been mm. in my blood for quite a little some foreshadowing time. of things. I know, to come. right? Right. Yes. So we have Quinn as the red priest, number three. <laughs> we have um, Miss Painkiller Jane, just Jane of Old Stones with flowers in her hair. In her headphones. Go ahead. In her headphones. Sorry, yeah. excuse me. The wildling's <laughs> daughter with a little creepy moon weirwood brooch. Cool. Patch face means doom bringer. That's me. Mm-hmm. Nice. Joey McWizards. <laughs> San, yep. San, San Rixian means light bringer. I, 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 I don't know. It definitely doesn't. <laughs> and the poetess of the Nettie Moans who has brought us all into this wonderful world of Under the Sea. I'm glad you drew her in here, too. I wanted to do a special Rabby portrait with nice. a real anemone crown, which may or may not be attached to her brain. Yeah, I'm seeing some new avatars right here for sure. Definitely. Yes. Um, yeah, cool. so anyway, you can find me, um, as I said, at San Ricci on Twitter. I'm super active there. You can talk to me. I love talking about stuff. Um, my merch is sanrixian.com, and I have shirts, prints, stickers, all that kind of good stuff. If you just want to check out my art, mallorydorn.com. And Mallory has is spelled M-A-L-L-O-R-Y and Dorn, like the books, but minus the E, sadly. There it is. And, and people think- are asking about the comic book, or not the coloring book, rather. And that's coming out, what, soon? When it came? Yeah, um, I I've basically had a lot of personal life stuff going on, so I'm super busy. Like Matt mentioned, he has to go work on um, his video. I have to go get his slides done for that video after the stream. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> um, I've just been working an insane amount. So, um, Thanks for your time very much, both you guys. Busy people. <laughs> really appreciate it. And so do the we're, people, of course. We're trying a new strategy with San Rixian. I have Lauren's essay already, and I'm withholding it to see if I if she'll actually finish things. <laughs> when- That's right. That's what's happening. I have the whole thing, Mallory. <sighs> Matthew. <laughs> Matthew. I swear to God. Sandra, gonna... you take your time. You finish it when it's good and ready. You tell him it'll be done when it's good and ready, okay? <laughs> oh, I'm going to smash his face into something. Don't worry. That's fully <laughs> justified. And so we'll know what happens. You can't reach this oh, high. You can't reach this high, Mallory. I will oh. give her a boost. <laughs> oh, I can't. I, can't. I am tall today. I there am we go. tall today, and also my beard is mostly rubbed off. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 give uh, Sandra credit for doing the standing desk here. <laughs> she is. Uh, can I get a little? Can I get some? Po- can I get some some hand posing or? Hang on, hang on. Gotta fully embrace it. Can, can we get an in any case? In any case, continuing on. Um, <laughs> as we said last comments, time, movie <laughs> As we discussed previously, my yeah. friend and good fellow mythhead from westeros.org slash Twitter slash wherever else. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> uh, your your poor significant other. Yeah, go go uh, go clean yourself up. All right, everybody. So thanks a lot. Thanks for everyone that came. We had two hundred people today. That's a huge audience. Thank you so much, guys. Hope you had fun. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll be watching back and I'll catch all your comments in the chat that I may have missed. Uh, in If I missed any super chats, uh, which I am, sometimes I do that. I apologize. I do appreciate it, of course. And we appreciate all of those patrons who support Mythical Astronomy. Every time I get a notification about a new patron, it makes my heart go ding-a-ling, clang-a-dang. So thank you very much. And with that, I will say uh, happy Halloween. Be safe out there. And don't forget about Quinn's stream, 7 Eastern on Halloween night. I will see you there, guys.
Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye.